and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week on the show. Slightly less busy episode than we have had for the last two months. Yeah, it has, it has been a marathon of very long podcasts to the point where we had to split up the Twin Peaks one into two parts. Yeah, uh, I can virtually guarantee this will not be a three and a half hour episode. Yeah, well, we'll see. We, we managed to do that somehow. But if you do want a longer episode... Oh, here's a little here's a little bit of housekeeping for us. Okay, I did release into the feed this weekend on Friday for the long weekend for us all um, a little surprise, which was our the Persona Five complete spoiler cast collection thing. What is that, Jonathan? So I, for posterity's sake, thought it would be fun to take our now five Persona Five spoiler cast discussions because we did one through four on two palaces each. Yes. And then we did a final wrap-up one. Yes. And each of those was like a solid two-plus hours long. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, we should collect these all in one place. Now, a sane person might say, you know, release them as standalone things. No, no, no. I edited them all together as one ten-and-a-half-hour episode. But, Jonathan, those were never designed to be connected directly to one another, so there's no segues or anything. How did you overcome this massive hurdle in your editing? Uh, I did little just interstitial things. Oh. Uh, wound up, because I didn't know where else to use them, like, we could have doled them out over, you know, the years with the, the show, but uh, I used all the little, like, 8-bit Famic- fake Famicom themes they yes. have in the game, so all of those are in there for little snippets, which is fun. But yeah, so it's just part 1, part 2, part 3, part 4, part 5, all in one episode. I actually was inspired to do this because my little brother is home for the summer from college, and he's playing Persona 5 on my PS4. And I was like, you know, if he ever wanted to listen, he probably doesn't because he doesn't at, like literally ever listen to this show. This but, is the right choice. <laughs> but you know, if if someone else was in that position of getting to the game slightly later, which makes sense because it's a long game. Yeah, I thought it would be easier to have something in the feed just because it's something we're known for. Of like all the Persona Five discussions, they're right here. You put it in a podcast app. It's a ridiculous length, but it'll you know it'll save your position in yeah. it. And then it also does have in the show notes like. Here's where this part starts and starts ends, and so you can listen to it as you go along with the game. Definitely, like, I've always, when, you know, other podcasts I listen to do, like, maybe a retrospective or something on, like, we're going over this season of TV or something like that, or a series of spoiler casts. If you come to it, like, a year later, those can be tough to find. Yeah. So I thought this would be a lot easier. And then there's a YouTube version of it, too, which uh, took, like, 24 hours to upload to YouTube. I mean, that was it's, fun. you know, that's yeah. that's not actually unreasonable considering no. the size of that no. audio file. But we now have a ten and a half hour video on our YouTube channel, which there is you fun. Go. So, uh, yeah, I just thought that was a cool thing to release, and I hope it's. I didn't say anything about it, so I hope it surprised podcast like subscribers when they got like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah, they feed? see that and it's like, "Oh, it finally happened! They finally just did the podcast where they just explode while they're recording it because they went so long." <laughs> yes. I knew this would happen one day, and it somehow released itself. Yeah. Yeah, no. So that's in the feed. Uh, yeah, so that was fun. Awesome. I don't know. Yeah, my voice is a little hoarse today, as you can probably hear, because I made the incredibly wise decision, like half an hour before recording this, of I I'm a, I'm doing this audition for this uh, video game project. It's like a fan dub of something, and I've been going back and forth with the guy because I'm kind of a finalist for one of these roles, and I so I've been doing all these, and I'm like, oh right, there's that line I forgot to do the take for and send that in. And it's like a big villain line that has, as in Japanese villains, a lot of shouting. Great. And so uh, I did that like right before recording this. So you might hear a little hoarseness in my voice because I kind of blew it out doing an evil laugh. Fantastic. So that was fun. Yeah. What have you been up to, Sean? Uh, I've been up to a little stuff here and there. I have actually, too much to my surprise, I have gotten into playing a little bit of Destiny again. After the big Destiny 2 reveal, I ended up watching... 
some of the video stuff, you know, because they had that reveal on, I think it was last Friday, and it's like Friday for like before the last podcast. And then obviously a couple of days after that, different video stuff from different outlets started trickling out. And so I started watching some videos of them playing like the strike that was available at that event and everything. And it just made me feel like, oh, right, I haven't like loaded up that game. And like since around the time the last expansion, Rise of Iron, came out, and I've also never really played as a Titan much in Destiny. So I just decided, fuck it. I love Titan. Yeah, Titan Titan is fun. Titan is cool. You punch things in the face, and that is very satisfying. And it always surprises me when I'm, like, jumping into Destiny again, because I'm so used to playing as a hunter. But I did make a Warlock character around the time they revamped everything for Taken King. And it's... I feel like on the... Looking at it at first, you feel like, oh, these classes are probably not going to be that different. And they're not, like extraordinarily different it's not like you know the difference between playing a like warrior in world of warcraft and playing a priest you know those are like completely different experiences but the ways that the different powers very subtly change how you approach a combat scenario in destiny always surprises me to how much different i feel at this point where my titan is like level 26 or something and so like my main subclass i have most of the abilities unlocked at this point and it, I really feel like when I approach an encounter, I'm thinking about it in a very different way than I do with my Hunter or Warlock character. Absolutely. Like, Destiny is the rare game of its type where I genuinely kind of love every class. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Diablo 3, although in Diablo 3 there's like seven classes, so it's yeah. harder to get into all of them. But like in Destiny, I have max leveled, at least for what was at the time max level, yeah. all three classes. Uh, Hunter, Warlock, Titan, and I love all of them. Titan is my favorite. There's just something about like... I don't know, it plays well to kind of the brute force of some Destiny encounters. Yeah. I love the punching in the face. And it had the best new class in the Taken King with the fucking Sunslinger stuff. Well, I haven't quite unlocked that yet. Because the stuff I finished earlier today, like basically right before you came over, was the house of the last House of Wolves mission. So like I'm right yes. on the edge to go do the Taken King stuff. Yeah, yeah. One thing I have been reminded by, though, by replaying the early parts of destiny is how bad some of those early missions are because it's been for some of those it's just been like over a year since i played any of the the original original destiny missions they're never in hoppers anymore yeah because i feel like they are very aware of how much better the mission design became around like house of wolves and then taken king and rise of iron all have much better missions than than the original vanilla destiny missions which only like you know, out of like the 15 or so there's like maybe three that are pretty okay and the rest are just like the most standard kind of nothing mission design. They're very grindy, as befitting the original version of Destiny. Yeah. And so that's making me sort of like also think about, you know, like them not like, you know, rocking the boat too much with Destiny 2 might not be so much of a bad thing because we don't actually, when you look at it, have that many good Destiny missions that have been made. Like we have this incredibly solid, unbelievably good playing first person shooter and then like, 60% of the missions are just complete garbage. Like, 10% of them are kind of okay. And 30% of them are like, yeah, this is a good mission. Yeah. I mean, it does. it's very exciting to have, you know, Destiny 2, if it's at least, like, the length and size of vanilla Destiny 1, and it'll probably be a little bigger than that. Yeah, I'm sure. Then you'll at least have, like, I assume everything in there will be on the par with, like, the Taken King and Rise of Iron. Yeah. And I'm totally up for a full game of that. Because even Taken King, which is a little longer... It's like, I want more when it's yeah. over. Yeah, so I've, I've, I have not been, like, playing it addictively or anything like that. I'm actually kind of surprised by how quickly you can get through the leveling curve these days in Destiny. Because it just feels like I've played, like, I don't know, maybe six hours total since, like, I started this project. And I'm, like, already at the Taken King stuff. Is like, oh, wow, this is, like, whoop, I'm just right here. Yep. It's 
Fun. Destiny's a very fun game. It's a good game. You know what yeah. else is a good game? What's a good game, Jonathan? Fire Emblem Echoes, Shadows of Valentia. You talked about this game last week on the podcast. Yeah, but I have so much more to say. This is a fucking good game. I'm very close to being done with it. As in, like, the evil emperor is my next enemy. Okay, but yeah. I, that's, although I'm sure you'll defeat the evil emperor, and then there'll be, like, the evilest emperor behind them that is, like, the ancient dragon emperor from there, the alternate dimension 500 years ago. There's going to be an evil dragon god, and I've yeah. already... Like, I will say, for in, fa- in favor of this Fire Emblem game, they very heavily foreground the evil dragon emperor you're okay. going to fight. Because it's, like, part of these, like fundamental lore of the world. Okay. So it's at least it's a lot more organic in this one than in some of them. Like, uh, if you play just the normal two roots of, like, Fire Emblem Fates, there's a lot that comes out of fucking nowhere at the end. But anyway, yeah. Uh, Fire Emblem Echoes is so freaking good. And I guess just to tell people where I am, little reminder that there is no stat in gaming as useless as the in-game clock of a Fire Emblem game. Yes, that is very true. <laughs> because Fire Emblem games, you restart... Over and over and over and over and over again. And then your actual like win route is going to be probably your shortest completion time. So I am at 20 hours on my in-game clock. If I go to like my 3DS activity log, which is more accurate, I'm at 35 hours. So there's a 15 hours of lost time, yeah. which is amazing to like put it in there. But yeah, um, I have been digging Fire Emblem Echoes. It is, I said last week just how terrific it is on every level. And it continues to impress me. It... It's either this or Fire Emblem Awakening that I think is the best of the Fire Emblem games I've played, has the best storytelling, the most interesting gameplay systems. I am so drawn in by the story in this game. It really is like, you know, a phenomenal, really good visual novel that's also a really good, robust Fire Emblem game. And you put those two together, it feels really nice. You know, I talked about how much I love the voice acting and the animation in this game. So much of it is fantastic. What I have really come to appreciate in the last week is that this is one of the hardest games I have ever played in my life. Maybe the hardest when I actually, like, if I, depending on, like, how it is near the end. Right. Because I've, I, I did get over a hump where I'm now pretty good at the game and I'm not having as much trouble as I was in the last, like, 20 hours. But this game has some of the most insane combat scenarios in any Fire Emblem I have ever played. So in any, like, game like this I've ever seen. Right. Like, here's one that just sticks out in my mind. It wasn't even the hardest one, but it did take me a while to figure out. Is you're playing as, on the Celica side of things, so she's the female protagonist. And you get to this area where you have to go through a swamp. Now, Fire Emblem likes its swamps and its lava and stuff. But they don't usually do this to you, where there is a swamp, and if you are in the swamp, you lose five health points a turn. Okay. And, you know, five is a lot, because yeah. in Fire Emblem, you... Like, at most, you're going to have, like, maybe 50 HP on a knight or a, or a paladin or yeah. something. And, like, your mage will be lucky if they ever hit 20 HP. Exactly. Uh, there's more ways to kind of work with that in this game, but still, like, you don't have a ton of HP. And this is not all that far into the game. This is, like, Act 3, I think. Out of, I think there's going to be 5. So, you're in the swamp, and they start you on... There's a bunch of, like, little islands in the swamp. But most of the land here is, like, swamp area. And you start on one little embankment in the bottom right corner of the map. And all your people are there. All the enemies are in like the top left corner or in the bottom left corner on different embankments. And to get to them, you have to go across the swamp and find them. Now, in some cases you might think, okay, well, the easiest thing actually is probably going to be let them come to me. Like that's going to be a common Fire Emblem strategy where I would put like my strongest people out in the swamp, have a healer at the ready... And get them, like, drawn out enough and then kind of pull them over and not put most people in the swamp. That's yeah. what I would do. Fire Emblem Echoes, 
it knows what you're doing. It knows okay. that. And so what it has is, and this is a really common enemy type in this game. They have these enemies called Cantors who summon other enemies that are very mobile. Oh, jeez. And this Cantor summons dragons. And the dragons can be pretty easy to beat if you know what you're, they're, you're doing, but they can also wipe your people pretty fast. And a Cantor, and you can have your own, like, Cantors. You can summon these little shadow knights, and they're actually really useful. But... You can get up to like eight in a summon because it'll do a circle around the person. And you're not always going to get that many, but you could get like between four, five, six, seven, eight. So that's a lot of dragons. Yeah. So they'll summon the dragons and they will send them at you. So those dragons are coming. And until you get to the Cantor, who again is in the furthest position on the map, for furthest from you, you kill the Cantor, that will stop and the dragons will disappear. But until then, they're going to be coming at you. So you have to be mobile. You have to move. And so it's like, all right. I have to figure out how to get my entire team from this embankment to the other side, get them across the swamp alive, and then when we get there, start fighting. And it took me forever to figure out the best way to do this. Ultimately, like, as in the best Fire Emblem scenarios, there's a lot of improvisation that happens. Right. Where, like, just things don't quite go your way. And so eventually I had one of my healers stranded on the original embankment, but she had a move called Psychic, which could, like, heal from afar. So that was that, that worked enough. But Psychic takes more HP to use. So I also had to leave another mage with her to heal her while she healed people from afar. Jeez. And then I also had to defend them. And this was all kind of by accident as moves went by. A, uh, an archer with them to like fight the dragons. Because they're fairly effective against dragons even though they have low HP. And then I was able to get most everyone onto the other embankment. Get them all the way up to the Cantor. Kill him. End the battle. All that stuff. Like, and this is also a lo- there are some long ass fucking battles in this game, and this is one that like a full playthrough of that battle is at least twenty minutes. Jesus. And so every time you're reloading, like it's a big commitment. Right. That one I was I was I was able to get through by the end, and it felt really good. But it is so hard. Some of the things they throw at you, man. There's another one uh, on the alm side of things. The other, the male protagonist, where you start in basically you have. Your people scattered in three locations. This is another thing this game does that modern Fire Emblems absolutely do not do on this level, where they split you into much more places on the map. So in this one, your team, and you can move your team around, but there are, they are, there's only so many like summon spots. Right. So you're in three spots, one at the bottom of the map, one at the top, one on the far side. And the one on the far side only has two people, and then the other two are fairly even. And it's like a big kind of, there's some forest in the middle, but it's like a big field. And so you have your people in these three, you know, you're all divvied up. And then in the middle, there is a ludicrous amount of mounted knights. Like, people on horse, mounted knights. Bunch in the middle, bunch on the sides. And it's like, well, fuck. I am not equipped to deal with this right now. And so it took a whole lot of trial and error. People definitely died. That was one I could not get through without somebody dying. And there's just a bunch of those. And they can be super frustrating in the moment of, like... A lot of where I will just look at it, I'll die once, and then I'll close the 3DS and just start thinking. Because it's like, I'm not going to be able to do this now. Especially if I was just coming off another battle. Some battles, it's like, this is going to be my day with this Fire Emblem game. Yeah, that is definitely how when I was playing Fire Emblem, that is how it worked for me. It was like, okay, yeah, I'm doing like one chapter. If maybe I just breeze through that chapter, I'll do like two. But you're not sitting there just like marathoning that game because that is brutal and exhausting. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot you'll get to. Like sometimes you'll get through one and you're on a high and you're like, yeah, and you move on to the next one. And maybe that's workable enough that you get through that too and you feel like you're on a can't you know you're on a really good run but then you'll feel like you're on that good run and then you get to one and you just look at the scenario they've given you i had this one today where i had to siege this um 
basically uh, it's called the last bastion so it's this big like uh, fortress before the emperor's hold and that one is where almost every enemy is elevated in like a fortress so your normal fighters can't hit them great and they're all there coming and there's these long rows that you have to like send your horses up and then you can kill like a really tough like knight there and then you could get up on the battlements and fight them but it's going to be pretty deep into the fight before you get there and before then you're like okay who, who is a ranged fighter who can do this where are my healers at you're really scattered it's a huge map and when i just saw the layout of that one that was one where i'm like i don't have the energy to do this right now close the 3ds go do something else you're like is there a cheat code that can just give me like siege weapons to this game can i just like <laughs> get a trebuchet or something because this seems unreasonable for me to, for like there's no way this group of like 15 people is going to storm this whole goddamn castle just with their horses and swords. It is true that, like, the playthrough of a Fire Emblem game that ends in you winning, you are the greatest general of all time. Yeah. You are a tactical genius. It just took many, many restarts to get there. I mean, it's basically, you know, it's like that that Tom Cruise movie, Edge of Tomorrow. It's just like, it's just you keep on dying. You're like, okay, I can go back and now I know. I can see it all. Yeah, so what I was going to say, though, is that as frustrating as it can be, the combat encounters are also just super creative. And, like, as much as I love some of the modern Fire Emblem games, the, the two 3DS entries, especially Awakening, they don't go to that same place. Some of it is because I don't think they want to challenge you quite as hard. And I do get that. They're, they're modern, you know, AAA Nintendo games for a wider audience. Yeah. That's a harder pill to swallow, I think, even when you have things in their, like, casual mode and whatnot. But, like, this is something like, yeah... In the Famicom era, they would be crazy enough to try some of these combat encounters. And I love that they really kept most of that intact for this game. And so, yeah, just the creativity of it that there are often scenarios where it's just someone is going to have to die for me to get through this because I have to have a pawn on the board so that I can get everyone else, like, across the swamp or something and leave someone behind to fight the dragons and per- perish, you know, sadly. The, the hardest one in the entire game is this, and I did not beat it satisfactorily, but there is a scenario where you are, I I don't even know how to describe this, but you are on like this embankment in the south of the map. And then there's a little bridge, and then like a fortress, and then another little bridge to like the end of the fortress. And there's a bunch of enemies, there's there's bow knights and mages and all this stuff. There's a cantor at one end of the map who summons a bunch of stuff. The cantor has also taken mind control of a little girl with magical powers. And that little girl can transport around the map and attack you, and she's very powerful. But you met that little girl's older brother in town, and he joined your team specifically so you could go save the little girl, bring her to your side, and then, you know, they could go home together. They'll actually probably just stay on your team. But, like, that's what you have to do. So, one, it's just an incredible... It would be a tough fight just based on the layout of the map alone and everything you have to do, and all the mages and the cantors and all that stuff... But there's this added wrinkle of there's a little girl zooming around the map who you are not supposed to kill because if you kill her, she's just dead and you're not going to get to recruit her. This is something Fire Emblems tend to do where there's someone on the map you can't kill because if you get through to them, you can recruit them. Right. I've never seen them do it this sadistically and I just, I tried for an entire day. I could not find a way to save the little girl and it broke my heart. But the only way for me to beat that was like near the beginning of the match, lure her out and then have... Basically, her older brother. I did it. I did it like as a narrative where her older brother had to go put her down. Jesus Christ! And, and, then, and then I used him as my pawn to get over the bridge, and both of them died. And Great. so I get through the match, and it's like, 
And it's like there's a really sad piece of music that is introduced after that battle. And what like hammered it home for me is that most bat, mat, you know matches and everything, you know, there'll be a story component. You get through it, then there's a cutscene. Because they both died, there's no cutscene at the end of that. And it just went into like we went in because there's you can actually go into buildings and stuff in this game. And we went into the building that we were kind of sieging, and just the saddest music was playing as we're kind of picking up the pieces. And I'm like. This is the magic of Fire Emblem, though, is that it forces you to make these incredibly tough decisions yeah. to get through. And a lot of the best narrative moments in Fire Emblem don't come in the actual digesis of the game. They're like using your imagination. Like, whenever a unit of mine dies, I've narrativized it in some way. Like, right. yeah, I'm going to have the old... Because older brother also just sucked. He was a mage, but was not all that useful. But it was like, yeah, he's going to be the one to go out and like put his sister down... And then use himself as a pawn because he doesn't want to live anymore. And you can read all that in because the game has enough room in kind of, you know, the sparser graphics and stuff like that. That you can use your imagination to fill in some of those details. And that to me is part of the magic of Fire Emblem. Even if it's sometimes it's really heartbreaking magic. And then, you know, at the end of the game, all the, the characters in the game just turn on you, Jonathan Lack, the human person that has made these choices to say, you sadistic motherfucker... We're, we're ending all of this now, and they kill you and destroy the game cartridge. Yeah. I think that's how this ends. It's, uh, it's a tough game, man, but I'm, I'm near the end. I, I, I definitely, this game really makes you get good at it if you're going to get through a lot of parts of it. And I've gotten pretty good. I've also had to relearn some of like my Fire Emblem habits, because in most of the modern games, which I would define as any that have really come out in North America, right. like one of the, the steadfast rules is, don't advance the class of your character until they hit level 20, the level cap. Yeah. Because you'll lose out on stat jumps. In this game, that's just completely untenable. You can get to that max level and everything. But there are, for one, there's more kind of class evolutions. The things you get are so useful and so key to getting through some of these matches. Like, you know, if I get to level 10 to 15 with a person, I'm advancing them because I just don't have the time to waste on getting them higher up because the skills they're going to learn in those evolutions are so important. And that's one of the things that I think was holding me back in some of the hardest parts is that I was really thinking of it in a more modern way where that probably was not a set-in-stone thing on the second ever Fire Emblem game. Yeah, Maybe you know? if you had learned that lesson earlier, that little girl wouldn't have to die. Uh, yeah, you but, bastard. but it, was, it was tough. One other thing they've added to this game that I thought... Like, I rolled my eyes at it first and thought I wouldn't like it, but it's a really interesting feature is um, there's this thing called Mila's Turnwheel. Mila is like the, the benign goddess of the game that you're trying to save, actually. So she's the good dragon god. Okay, and yeah. D Duma is the evil dragon god. Really? Duma is the evil dragon god? <laughs> yes. I never would have guessed that. But Duma it, sounds like such a nice person. But you do have this little device called Mila's Turnwheel, and it's a thing that does a couple things in the game, like you can rewatch cutscenes through it and stuff like that. I guess that's where you activate amiibos, although I don't, haven't used any amiibos on this. But... It also has this feature that is in battles. You find cogs around the world, and you have on the bottom, on the touchscreen, a little cog symbol and a number. And what that does is when you hit it, you can use a cog to rewind the match a little bit. So okay. you could like go back a turn, you can go back move by move, something like that. And I scoffed at that for a long time, kind of like I would casual mode, where your players don't die. Right. Where they turn permadeath off. Not as something I don't think should be in the game. I'm not one of those snobs who thinks they should never put casual mode in. Because, frankly, not everyone has time yeah. for classic Fire Emblem mode. Some people need to play it through casual, and that's totally okay. But I just thought it wasn't for me. But then I realized, like, they, there's a real reason they put that in this game. Which is that just the battles are so much longer and more demanding than I think in modern Fire Emblem games. 
there is a, a benefit to just like, okay, I'm 25 fucking minutes into this thing and I just lost my only archer. I could restart this and do the whole thing again, but there would just be a level of frustration that I think would right. set in. So being able to go back uh, a turn or something and retry it out is useful and it's also strategically... I actually think it makes the game really, really interesting because it allows me also like to maybe be bolder in some scenarios and try something out. And if it works, great. But if it doesn't, I can literally go back like unit move by move and study what I did and be like, that's the turning point. If I move my knight here or something... Then I can win that, this and like be, get through this okay. And it, it still does not like erase the challenge because if you really fucked yourself, Miller's turn wheel is not going to save you right. unless like you rewind to the very beginning of the match or something. Which, which is point, like by that point, just restart the whole match anyway. Right, don't waste a cog on that. But like I've definitely, I will, there, was, there are some scenarios where I'll have like seven cogs, I'll use all seven, and then I'm like, I just need to restart this because clearly something fundamental in my strategy was off. Yeah. So I actually really like that addition to the game. And I wouldn't mind if they find other ways to use something like that in other Fire Emblem games. I think if you just threw that in, like, Awakening or Fates, it would be unnecessary. Because I don't think the match links and everything really demand that. But it is a really interesting thing that allows you to kind of study the strategy of the game more. And just that this game, you know, it, it's not the typical structure of there's just one battle per chapter or something. There's a lot more battles, some big, some small you really get a better sense of overall Fire Emblem kind of strategy and philosophy with this game because there's so many more scenarios in which you are doing the tactical turn-based battles. Cool. Like, how um, easy is it to get those cogs? Like, is it a, when you use it, do you feel like, okay, like, I really need to be sure that this is, I want to use this because if, like, I waste this and end up winning this fight, like, that could be a bad thing in the future? Uh, they're not that rare. Like okay. I have, I, I don't know how many times I've actually like found one in the world and picked it up because you must get them through other means that I'm not sure of, like maybe just general playtime or something, or like maybe, maybe murdering little children. <laughs> I was gonna say for like number of matches won or something like that. Because um, I could think, again, I've used them fairly sparingly. At the moment, I think I have eight or nine, although that may have gone down because I had a really tough battle earlier today, and I think I, I brought myself down to seven. But I've generally stayed up there. And again, like, but you're right, they are, I never want to, like, go down to zero yeah. and then feel like I'm never going to find them again because what if, like, I really hit a wall later on and this is useful? But it's also not, like, the other way you would expect that is, like, it's a microtransaction thing, right? Right, yeah. And they, that's not a part of it at all. You yeah, don't, like, good. click it and it says, pay $2 for another cog. There's none of that. Like, that's what Bravely Default did with its bravely second mode and that always just annoyed me a little bit huh. this does not do that this is an actual gameplay mechanic i mean it would be exceedingly skeevy for them to have their fire emblem heroes gotcha mobile game already that is probably fucking like bringing in millions of dollars and then also put microtransactions into their full price normal fire emblem yeah. games that'd be like a whole other level of fucked up yeah there's a lot of dlc for this game as there has been for all the 3ds fire emblems but no microtransactions is the dlc like costume stuff or something like that or is it like little missions it's maps and everything like oh. like awakening was i believe the first nintendo game like first party nintendo game to really heavily invest in dlc and so fates and now echoes have done a ton with it and in fact gone a little overboard like echoes has already two dlc packs out one of which is like a beginner's thing where if you want to like level up early in the game, it's like extra maps that you can huh. fight on, some extra and one extra dungeon to explore, or something like that. I, I don't have any of these, so right. I can't speak to it directly. There also this one might already be out. There's going to be like a prequel story pack 
where like the the little army you fight in in the game, the Deliverance, it tells like how the Deliverance was founded, and it's like a little four chapter story or something. And then they're going to have all sorts of other things. There's so much of it. The season pass for this game is more expensive than the game itself. Jesus, it's forty five dollars. Huh. So, because I remember I got the season pass for Fates and played a lot of it, and it's okay. But that was like fifteen bucks, and I was like, that seems reasonable. <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of crazy. Like that they, I mean, they're already putting out Fire Emblem games at like a really high clip. Yeah, that to also be putting out a lot of DLC for them is kind of insane. Yeah, and and the limited amount of DLC I've played for like Awakening and Fates, it's not that good. It's uh-huh. okay. You can tell like the same amount of effort and polish has not gone in as in the main story. Hmm. So. But yeah, it's they they've kind of gone DLC crazy. That said, in all the games I've never felt like by not playing the DLC I've missed out on anything. So, as long as that's the scenario, my view is always like make as much as you fucking yeah, want. I yeah. don't have to buy it, you know. But it is interesting cuz like people I don't think realize that's the series where Nintendo has gone heavy on DLC. Yeah, I didn't even really know that there was that much for the older ones too. Yeah, cuz they've done little pockets of DLC for, you know, Mario Kart and Smash Bros, a lot for Smash Bros. But that also, like, those games really intuitively make sense with that. Yeah, new characters, new courses, like, yeah. yeah. But no, um, but I love Fire Emblem Echoes. It, it, by the time I'm done with it, this might be my favorite Fire Emblem game. Huh. I think it, it really does mix the just hardcore, you just might be fucked nature of older yeah. Fire Emblem games. Like, I remember from the GBA games. Yeah. With, I think, the modern polish. And it's more polished than any Fire Emblem game. Just the storytelling is so great. The voice acting adds... Such a new dimension to the game. It's kind of incredible. Um, it's a really great game. And I think maybe a little underrated from what I've seen so far. And some of that might be that, again, I think a lot of critics, as with a lot of players, probably were introduced to Fire Emblem with Awakening and Fates. Yeah. And if you have never played one older than that, I can see how this one might be alienating in some ways. I find it really fascinating. And I actually hope future Fire Emblems learn from some of the more openness of this game. Like... The dungeons are not the most interesting thing in the world, but I just fought through one that was a tower and actually reminded me a little bit of the library in Halo because it's really tough and you keep going up and it's unrelenting and I lost like an hour of progress in that thing. But it's also like a really interesting idea for a Fire Emblem game to be explorable and then the tactical battles take the place of what would be a normal RPG turn-based battle on the map. So it's a really fascinating game. And, uh, God, I love the music in it, too, because I got a soundtrack with the special edition, but I'm at the point of the game where the music that I'm listening to now is not on that one-disc soundtrack, Mm -hmm. and I'm frustrated because it's like, these songs are so good. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, I mean, that is what led me to now, like, collecting, basically, Persona soundtracks was Persona 4 on the PS2 came with a little soundtrack disc that was, like one third or something of the music from the game and then as soon as I started hitting music that I hadn't didn't have access to I was like well this is going to be a thing now this is going to yeah. be a thing I do <laughs> just collect fucking Persona soundtracks yep and uh, I've also just I've loved having an excuse to go back and play my 3DS because I've talked about this before the DS line of systems is just forever probably going to be my favorite video game console because I've been playing them for 13 years now well, good for and you. I, they keep on making more, I know, more DSs. I know. It's uh, but I've, but I just love playing. There's just something about like the just the little, you know, basic nature of the DS, the 3DS now, the clamshell design, all of that. I love it. I've also got like Super Mario World on there. So when Fire Emblem gets really stressful, I just go play a little Super Mario World. It's a good de-stressor. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's Fire Emblem Echoes. Um, one other piece of stuff I wanted to mention. Okay. Um, I talk about this show sometimes, and I have not for a really long time, um, but Supergirl, which yeah. I really love, uh, the CW show, just ended its second season, and I, it, it kind of, 
I think for some some reasons having to do with the quality of the show itself, I don't think it got a lot of hype on the way out the door this year. Yeah. Uh, as much as it did certainly early in the season, like when they had Superman on and all that stuff. Or the musical episode. Or the musical episode, which is probably the last time I talked about this or The Flash. The Flash season three, I totally fell off. It was okay. The home stretch was really rough as it was in season two. It got way too dark. And I read what how the season ended on Wikipedia. And I will probably go back and watch those episodes at some point. When they like appear on Netflix, but for now it was just like there were too many episodes and they were piling up. And there's a, right. there, if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of TV on right now. Yeah, I did keep up with Supergirl, ended the season, and I still really love that show. It had some issues in the second half of the season in that for maybe the first 13 episodes or so, I thought Supergirl season two seemed very focused, very it had a lot of unifying themes to it. It had some really interesting directions it went in, such as with Supergirl's sister Alex. And her uh, coming out uh, as gay and, and having a girlfriend for the first time. And all of that was really good. They did some good stuff with Martian Manhunter. Yeah. And uh, I forget the actual name of this character, but a character they gave the title of Mrs. Martian okay, and yeah, stuff Ms. like Martian. that. So, you know, they had some stuff with, like, you know, him and his, his continued, you know... Uh, Hatred of the white Martians and stuff like that. There was even a little an arc where he almost became a white Martian. Whole thing, but yeah, uh, I'm sure that's happened in the comics many times. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not that detailed a like Martian Manhunter historian, but that yeah. has probably happened in the comic books. Yeah, so yeah, that um, you had some interesting stories going on, and there was this main storyline with this evil organization called Cadmus, run by Lex Luthor's mother, that like hated aliens and was trying to eradicate them. What's Lex's mom's name? <sighs> I don't think I I don't think I've ever heard I, well, like Lex Luthor's mom is not a like character I'm super familiar with. Yeah, I don't remember her name because in 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 the course of that story you also meet Lex's sister Lena Luthor who became okay. who became a main character on the show this year because in this continuity Lex is in prison like Superman's already battled him and okay. all that and so like Lena is now head of the company and is trying to like set it on the straight and narrow and Supergirl slash Kara become Lena's best new best friend and they're really good friends and then so they're both like mad at Mrs. Luther because she's doing evil things and and Cadmus was part of this whole story where they hated all the aliens coming to Earth and finding refuge and so it became this very topical story of you know, basically it was a Trump allegory right. of evil nationalists trying to get the aliens off their planet. And that was really interesting. And then that storyline kind of peaked around episode 13, 14. I forget what exact episode where that peaked. And then the show just kind of out of the blue chose a different, like, direction for its home stretch. Hmm. Where there was this character on the show this year named Mon L, who, uh, there's been a hundred versions of Mon L over the years. But, like, this one was a Daxamite, which is, like, the, the planet all the Kryptonians hate. Because the Daxamites are assholes. Right. But he landed on Earth thinking he was the last surviving son of Daxam. Because when Krypton, Krypton blew up, all the, like, shards of Kryptonite hit Daxam and killed everyone. And he got off. And uh, he becomes, over the course of the season, Kara's love interest and all this stuff. He starts working with her as, like, a sidekick kind of thing. And I actually liked that character. I thought Chris Wood was good. He and um, Melissa Benoist had pretty good chemistry, even though once they actually became a couple, it was less interesting, which that's also happened on The Flash with certain characters and stuff. So they're not all that great at writing romances for the main characters yeah, on I these mean, shows. I there, mean, there is actually a pretty good reason that most TV shows, or, like, most fiction in human history... The story ends once the characters get in the relationship because it is hard to write characters in an ongoing relationship and have them be the main characters of a of a story. Yeah. So, but what happened over the course of the season is Mon El's parents turned out to have survived, and they're the king and queen of Daxam, and they come to Earth with some other Daxamite ships, and they want their son back, and Mon El's like, 
you guys are assholes. Like, you're evil, you know, monarchy, basically. Uh, Kara has taught me how to be a good person. I want to stay here. And I thought it was a pretty good, like, two-episode mini-arc where, like, Mon-El reaffirms his decision to be an Earthling. And I'm like, okay, that was good. And then his mom kept not leaving Earth and, like, kept coming back and, like, eventually killed his dad and all this stuff and went power crazy. And she becomes the new villain of the season. And the season ends with an alien invasion of the Daxamites in which now Cadmus comes back to team up with Supergirl and well, the go. and the DEO to fight the aliens. And you might see how the metaphors get really, really mixed when you get no, to that point. No, I mean, point. Cadmus was right all along. Those dirty aliens are taking over our fucking planet and they need to get the fuck off our fucking planet. Those dirty fucking aliens. I don't see what's... There's nothing wrong with that. We need to build a wall around Earth to keep the fucking Dax and whatever is out of here. It really would be like if someone was making a dramatization of the Trump presidency as, like, they don't like Trump, yeah. and then end it with an invasion of, like, Mexicans or yeah. something. It would be like, that's not the right message. You don't get what you're talking about. So I thought, and actually I liked the two, like, the two-part season finale. Like, Superman's in it. There's a lot of really good stuff there. Um, I like kind of the final moments and how they choose to resolve the Monel story and everything. But there was just a couple problems. One, as I said, the mixed metaphors and that the season goes in a drastically different direction in its back third than it did in the first two thirds. Mon-El is a character I like, but he sucks way too much oxygen out of the room once his family becomes that central to the conflict. Mm-hmm. When, you know, I think there are definitely episodes this year where they forgot who the main character was or weren't centering things correctly on Supergirl because, and it's, it's for many reasons, just one, narratively, you want it centered. Two, Melissa Benoist is really fucking fantastic in that role. And it's just sad when it's like, I like all the other characters too, but there doesn't feel like there's a center to this show all the time. So I will say, this, this season ended in a very good way and feels like, okay, I think they're centered again. Maybe if they don't go off on weird tangents next year, they can go forward and maybe that was just a hiccup. I don't think the show ever got bad this year. There were only a couple of episodes I didn't like. And I think... I've seen some harshness to this, and I think some, especially genre fans, just forget that there really doesn't exist a 22-episode season of TV that is perfect. Yeah. Even if you love a show to death, like Sean, you would probably say The X-Files, a typical 22-episode season, is not 22 A-plus episodes. <laughs> no. Yeah. Never. There is a reason why that show ended. You yeah. Know? And, and it's, to me, that's totally okay. Like, when yeah. I watch that kind of show, the joy in it for me is partially that it is there every week and I can go back to it. And you have to accept that they're not going to hit a home run every week, but I still get to spend time with the characters and all that. And sometimes it'll be really good, and that's what you're there for. But, you know, I think at 22 episodes, I don't think it's too long necessarily. I like that some people still make that length of a season because I like to have a show around that long. But there were some times when it sagged and whatnot. So I still like the show. I thought it ended really strong. Um, The biggest problem to me with this season is that the Callista Flockhart character, Cat Grant, um, because the show moved to Vancouver and Calista Flockhart did not want to move to Vancouver, I understand. No one sure. really wants to move to Vancouver. But yeah, I mean, the only reason, as far as I understand, anybody's ever moved to Vancouver is specifically because their TV show is starting to be shot in Vancouver, yeah. like with The X Files. Yeah, didn't X Files go the reverse way? Where they I moved? think it was the reverse. Yeah. Like they started in Vancouver. And then David Duchovny said, You're moving to LA, we're yeah. a hit now. Yeah. So, so uh, Calista Flockhart did not move, so she was only in the first two and last two episodes of the season. And she is so good and such a part of, I think, the heart of that show. And I don't think they ever found an adequate replacement for the role she serves in the mm-hmm. show. And you really notice that in the two part finale where she comes back because it's just like something feels right again. 
And there's no perfect answer to that. I just hope maybe, I don't know, pay her a little more and get her out to Vancouver a couple more times next year. Because she doesn't have to be in every episode. Right. But, you know, like part of that is that because of that, James Olsen, they took in a totally different direction. And I liked that character okay in the first season. Because I liked kind of a cool, like, little older Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. And then they tried to do a weird romance with him and Kara, and that didn't work at all. And this season he became a masked vigilante named Guardian. And that okay, really didn't yeah. work. Okay, yeah. It, it's, there's one episode with James this year that was fantastic revolving around that. It also showed that unless I think he's the center of the story, that story doesn't work. And he can't be because the show's called Supergirl, not Not Jimmy. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. Olsen. Right. That is the TV show that surely that's the next superhero TV show they're going to make. Well, the CW does have a lot of superhero shows. I so. mean, it feels like if they've already gone to the step of making him a master vigilante in Supergirl, you know that there was like someone who's like, this is like my low-key pitch to get this made. I've always wanted to make a Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen TV show, and it's finally going to happen. Yeah. It's funny, because I do like all the main cast members on Supergirl, and it is arguable they have too many of them at this point. Like... There's probably too many characters that even if they were all working at 100%, there's too many plates to spin there. Mm. Especially because the core of the show with Supergirl and Alex and maybe Martian Manhunter, John Jones, that's good enough to kind of support an entire show. Yeah. Um, so we'll see where it goes from here. I did even like uh, some of the episodes this year dealing with Kara really trying to become like a, an ace reporter, which was even the okay. name of one of the episodes. Great. And it's fun because... It totally works as comic book logic, even though if you know the first thing about journalism, you have to take a step back and be like, Kara has the worst ethics of any journalist because every story she gets, she gets by being Supergirl and like flying in and beating up an alien and then getting the story. And it's like, that's, I, I understand she's a, in a fundamentally different scenario. It's the same reason why Superman, Clark Kent, is not that great a journalist if sure. you actually break it down. And maybe they could do better with that next year, but it was a couple of times where it's like, I get, like, she's plucky and everything, but that's not journalistic ethics. <laughs> I mean, but we really, though, we do need to get the dirty aliens off the planet. So it's like, if we need to break some <laughs> journalistic ethics, like, what is that? That's a very small price to pay to make Earth great again, in my opinion. I don't know. That's uh, just me. Yeah. I really did like the Lena Luthor character. I'll say that. Uh, great addition to the show. Really interesting take on, like, if you're going to have a Luthor component. I like that she was, she's a good person, and there was no twist halfway through the season of, like, she's actually evil like Lex. I'm sure that, they, that they're saving that for, like, season five or something. <laughs> and they, actually, She is going to turn evil at some point. If this TV show goes on long enough, she will turn <laughs> evil at some point. I fucking guarantee you. Oh, I know. But, like, at, like... Even to the point where in some episodes, like, Melissa Benoist and that actress who plays Lena have such good chemistry that you think, like, maybe they should have just had Supergirl be gay also. Because this is, this is an actually interesting relationship. And the mon thing is kind of cute, but, like, she has more chemistry with the, the other person. Right. So, anyway, it's all good. I like that show. Cool. It's fun. Well, you um, talked about a TV show. I have a TV show I want to talk about that I also watched uh, in is, between the last episode and this episode. Is this more of the uh, Chinese novel thing? No, this is not my... I already finished Romance of the Three Kingdoms, Jonathan. I, I okay. finished the Romance of the Three Kingdoms TV show like three weeks ago now. No, I watched... Um, the, I finished watching, I should say, the most recent Mobile Suit Gundam anime, Iron-Blooded Orphans, which is something that it's basically... It's 50 episodes. That's They call it two seasons, even though like the concept of seasons for anime does not totally translate to our concept of seasons, but it's on Crunchyroll. They split it up into two seasons, two 25-episode seasons. And something that I finished watching the first season when it aired like about a year ago. And then in April they finished 
like the whole run of the show because it, it caps off at 50 episodes. And something that I, I tended not to talk about the anime stuff I watch on the show all the time because I feel like it's usually it's not so like notable or remarkable to talk about. But this show I think is really fucking good and is something that um, if anyone is interested in this kind of genre of mech anime, like the more realistic, more kind of heavy war story stuff, or is interested in getting into Gundam or something like that, this is a fantastic show to watch because it's basically it's as is most uh, modern Gundam shows. It's totally self-contained. It's set in its own universe, and the basic premise of it is it's set in the like. Stop me if you've heard this one. It's set in the far future where Earth has colonized Mars, but all the people living on Mars are living in, like, poverty and crime is rampant and all this stuff because the Earth people are governing Mars, but because the Earth people are on Earth, they don't really know how to take care of the scenario on Mars. And so all the people on Mars are getting royally fucked over, and there's a slow revolution happening on Mars. You maybe have heard that's the sci-fi premise before. but So that's the kind of, like, the, the setup of the general setting but what's like really remarkable about the show is the group of main characters are the, basically the iron-blooded orphans of the title that are all these um, child soldiers that are you know kids who have grown up on the street that have no real family, no support structure or anything. That some of which are, that are like literally slaves because in this setting they have slavery has become a thing again in like the outer stretches of the Earth's sphere where they're called human debris. And so you have slaves or basically basically indentured servant children who. You know, are, um, all of them are working for this private military corporation because they have nothing else to do. And the first story arc of the show that kind of sets up how the show moves forward is the two main characters, Orga, who's sort of the smartest uh, of the kids, and his best friend Mikazuki, who's like this kind of, I mean, he's basically like a sociopathic killer who's the character who eventually pilots the Gundam of the show. They kind of hatch a plan to, um, in this sort of like really chaotic scenario, basically capture and execute most of the adults that are running the private military corporation they're part of and take it over and rebrand it as the Tech Kadan, which basically means the Iron Flower Brigade, so that they... So it's this uh, PMC, like, made by and run by child soldiers that then go out into... Like, they have access to this big ship and, like, all the resources that this PMC had, and Orga, the leader, basically, like, makes it his mission to start taking these jobs and try to find a way to make to grow a techadon into a organization that then can like operate like on an official capacity and where these kids don't have to just fight and die to just make ends meet and that they like actually make money and they take like merchant jobs and stuff like that and it's this really really great show that has it's just unbelievably tragic it's so brutal because it has you know like most Gundam shows are very interested in, in war and technology, and they tend to have a lot of stuff talking about child soldiers because the typical protagonist of a Gundam show is a like, 15, 16, 17-year-old boy slash like, young man who is thrust into this like unexpected scenario where they are forced to fight because they're the only person who can pilot the Gundam for whatever reason. That's like the stock standard setup. And this show, one of the things that makes it really interesting is instead of it kind of like sort of dealing with this child soldier concept because of the way that the show likes to, the, the franchise likes to talk about adolescence. It just tackles it 100% head on. It's not just the main character. It's like all of the main characters of the show are basically all child soldiers or some are adults that used to be child soldiers. And it's a show that really seriously tackles those themes in a way I think is pretty rare, especially I don't think I've ever seen a sci-fi show do this in this way. And it, the way the writing captures this really brutal sense of 
the kind of the psychology that these children have, in particular the psychology of them as an organization where, you know, they don't necessarily see as much value in their own lives. They're much more willing to sort of like go along with plans that will sacrifice themselves. And so Orga, the main character, the leader, has to make all these unbelievably brutal decisions about like how many of these kids that are working for me am I willing to sacrifice in order to have the rest of them have a chance to live a like stand up normal life. And like that tension of them trying to come up with all these plans and trying to find a way to make their way in the world and become like honest and, and live a like normal life while having, but not really knowing what a normal life is, you know, Orga, the main character having to sort of figure out a way to be like the president and leader of this organization while when he's never like known anyone who's like an adult role model, like he has no idea how to fulfill that role. The way the show tackles all those themes that I think is just fantastic. The ending is brutal, but is so good. It's so smart. It's, it captures the idea and like themes of the show so perfectly. And it's the kind of show that I think like, does not come around all that often. I think it's the best Gundam show there's been in like for like for the like chronology of the series for since maybe Wrecking Beast and G and even then I think it's better than that, which that's like from like 2010. And then before that you'd have to go to like the beginning of the millennium basically. Because I think like Gundam as a series has sort of stagnated a little bit and this has found like a really brutal but very interesting path to sort of, you know, find its own identity while also I think reinvigorating sort of the core themes of the franchise, which is one of the reasons why I think it's a good show. If you're curious about Gundam to start with, because if you watch this show and you like it, is there's a very good chance that you would like most of the franchise because it tackles these very similar themes, but from a lot of different perspectives. I was going to ask about that because I assume yeah. at the moment this is one of the easier ones to get your hands on because mm-hmm. it's just on Crunchyroll. Yeah, Crunchyroll has started to get a couple of other Gundam series, but this is the best one on there in my opinion. Nice. How many Gundam series are there at this point? Um, uh, it's, that's kind of a confusing question because there's so like there's the original series which spawned like a continuity of like a couple of sequel shows that like so basically all the Gundam shows from like the '80s are all in one continuity that's called the UC continuity, the Universal Century. And so all those are kind of their, like... I mean, you can separate them out, that there's, like, Mobile Suit Gundam, Zeta Gundam, Double Zeta, uh, Victory Gundam. Then then Victory Gundam, I think, is the last one in that continuity. And then they, there's been, like, a bunch of little, like, spin-off ones that are, like, little tiny small series. Like, um, there's a show called War in the Pocket that is, like, I think it's a six-episode miniseries that that's fucking fantastic. Like, that's another great one to watch, though I don't think that's easily accessible anywhere right now. But then after that, they have there's just a bunch of smaller ones, like... Or there's a bunch of their own, like, you know, separated-out universe ones. There's After War Gundam X, Turn A Gundam, like, Gundam Wing, Mobile Suit Gundam Seed, Seed Destiny... Double O Gundam or Gundam Double Zero as it is supposed to be called but I only ever think of it as Double O Gundam because that's I, I like the idea of James Bond as being a Gundam pilot even though it has nothing to do with James Bond or anything but the, the, the Gundam of the show is Gundam Double Zero so it's like there are quite a few but they're not like none of them are longer than 50 episodes so it's actually like very easy to just say like oh I'm going to like you can easily watch through a whole Gundam show basically in a week because you know they're 50 episodes or less than 50 episodes and each episode is like 22 minutes long. So it's like surprisingly approachable. I think it's a lot more approachable than if you wanted to watch One Piece or something. It's which is like yeah. a continuous... Because I think there, oh, there almost certainly are more episodes of One Piece than there are like episodes of every Gundam show made. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's 
Name a show that's less accessible than One Piece. Or I don't know, but yeah. So the, if you wanted to watch the entire Pokemon anime, maybe that. That would be that would be a hell. I wouldn't ask a video to watch <laughs> every single episode of the Pokemon anime. I think they've broken a thousand episodes now. They probably have. Yeah. It in One Piece. One Piece started two years later, so it's going to get yeah. there. It's in the eight hundreds, I think. Yeah. No, but but yeah, Iron Blood Orphans is fantastic. The animation's great. The fight scenes are great. The music is great. One thing that people should know, though, going in, I think this is only fair to warn you, if you have never watched a Gundam show, this is a proper Gundam show in the sense they fucking kill characters off left and right. Like, this is not, like, do not go into this show thinking that, like, oh, everything will, like, work out okay in the end necessarily because it's, like, it's a war story and this is not, like, it's not a kid's show. So they, you- like, characters die all the fucking time. It is so unbelievably brutal. But they don't use them for, like, cheap characters. There's only one death in Iron Blood Orphans that, like, I think is, like, on the edge of being kind of a cheap death. But I think the way they execute on it and the way it moves the plot forward, like, justifies itself. So if you need your Game of Thrones fix of just watching characters die? Well, I mean, if you think that Game of Thrones is, like, the show that invented fucking killing off characters, go watch Victory Gundam. Because, holy shit, Victory Gundam... They basically just introduce people to, to, for the sole purpose for you to like them and then to just fucking put a bullet in their head two episodes later. Nice. Yeah, no, Gundam, it, it kills characters off. So yeah, like, go into it knowing that that is, like, the kind of show it is. Because I have definitely sometimes, I have, and I know people definitely who have, like, ended up watching a show not realizing that's the kind of show it was and, like, ending up bouncing off of it because, like, oh, okay, this is more, this is too heavy than what I want to deal with. How, so on that note, and something we yeah. talked about earlier... How has there never been a Fire Emblem anime? Like, That's a, a good, good like, 26-episode Fire Emblem anime that does the plot of one of the games and basically does what you're talking about. You could kill characters so great yeah. in that kind of story. And those games have such good stories. Yeah. You really could do a good job with that. Like, set up the little boy villager, and then in episode 6, cut his head off. It, it would be definitely one of those <laughs> kind of anime. Like, it reminds me of... Um, I think it's the anime adaptation of Devil Survivor 2. It's one of the, like, Shin Megami Tensei, Tensei spin-off games. Yeah. I don't remember exactly, because there's, like, Devil Survivor and Devil Summoner. I can never remember which one is which. I own one of them on my 3DS, and I don't know yeah. which. But they made an anime adaptation of one of those, and they only made an anime, anime adaptation of one of those, so you can find it, like, look that up. But when I, I watched it several years ago, but the thing that's, it's, it was, I remember it being okay, but the thing that stuck out the most to me about it was it was a show that killed people off constantly, to the point where the ending credit sequence of the show was like this camera like it was really good whereas this camera pan forward down this street with all the characters lying at the side of the street and then it would get to the end and it would start pulling back and be different characters coming back and over the course of the show as different characters died off they would start disappearing from the ending credit (laughs) sequence until by the end for like the last episode it was literally basically everyone had died so it was like a camera pan to the end of the street where the protagonist is standing i think it was the protagonist and then a camera pan all the way back out for like like you know for basically 45 seconds because it's a 90 second long ending credits like animation sequence pull all the way back for 45 seconds of an empty street until it comes up to the uh, like antagonist at the other end of the street it's like yeah yeah man they did kill like 20 fucking characters over the course of this show holy shit like that's such a brutal way to try to like stick a pin in that for the audience Man. to remind you oh yeah I remember red haired dude he got brutally murdered in episode 4 if Game of Thrones wanted to be hardcore it should totally have that kind of ending sequence yeah. just have Sean Bean in every ending sequence getting his head yeah, cut off and just, and just fading away Yep. alright let's move on and do some news what's okay. happening in the news Jonathan uh, we're starting with a piece of sad news again oh yeah because this 
2016 was brutal for celebrity deaths. 2017 has also been really brutal for celebrity deaths. Yeah. I think there's a whole generation of actors kind of going away at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and one of those uh, this week was Roger Moore passed away at the age of 89, ripe old age of 89. Yeah. And that's always worth noting and celebrating. Good long life. Um, but he played James Bond. Yes. And he didn't just play James Bond. He is the most prolific James Bond. Um, seven movies as James Bond did it for the longest amount of time. Um, I think there's a, a large generation of people for whom he is the definitive James Bond because yeah. he just... Every two years you'd go to the movies and there he was and a lot of people grew up with that. Uh, he was in a lot of other things as well, of course, and he was just... Had a very unique presence, has a wonderful British voice. <laughs> I, I love his just specific voice. Yeah. You know, it's sad for a number of reasons. He is the first James Bond to pass away, um, which that just feels like kind of the end of an era. That we did it. it's, it's kind of amazing that we've made it this long yeah. with no James Bonds passing away, but he is the first. And um, yeah, I you know, and I think where I would start with this is as much as there is that generation that intensely loves Roger Moore's James Bond, I think there is a modern sense that he was like the bad James Bond or like the super cheesy, like no one likes that James Bond. Sure. I've heard that a lot. And I, I mean, because think... he definitely was in, like, for, like, because I have not seen all the movies or, like, anything near the extent that you have the relationship with that franchise. But, like, I think the ones I have seen of him, like, a lot of them stand out as being the cornier of the James Bond movies. Yes. And some of them are corny. And really, really awful. Some of them are corny and really, really great. Yeah. And I, I'll just like... Because I definitely... When I really got into James Bond and started watching films from his era, I went in kind of pessimistic because there is this whole, I think, mythology around some of his movies about how bad they are or something. Like, people really hate Moonraker. And I, I really would stress, like, if that's kind of the view of Roger Moore's Bond you've had... I would really encourage you to go watch some of the better ones and disabuse yourself of that notion because yeah. it's not to me it's not true. The Spy Who Loved Me, his third film, is definitely a contender for the best James Bond film. I, I know when Spectre came out, I made a list of my favorite Bond films. I have no recollection of what like my list was, yeah. but I know that was at the top, and I know I was definitely debating that could be my number one because The Spy Who Loved Me is a perfect movie. It is a just such a fun movie. Roger Moore is so good in that one as kind of this perfect distillation of like, you know, the suave side of the Ian Fleming character, but also I think the embodiment of the more kind of fun, down-to-earth version of that character that the movies had, you know, had been more interested in for a long time and at different points in the Bond arc are more interested in. Yeah. And, you know, that movie is just a wonderful, wonderful movie and it's a ton of fun. Watch uh, For Your Eyes Only. That's my second favorite of his. It's one of the more obscure Bonds, um, but it shouldn't be. It's a really great James Bond film. It's the most down-to-earth of the Roger Moore films in that it is... They don't go to space or anything like that. There's no underwater car or anything like that. Uh, but I really love that one. And I'm going to get raked over the coals by this from someone. I like Moonraker. Moonraker. I like Moonraker, too. Yeah. It's one of like the handful of ones that I, of his that I've seen because I feel like that is one of his movies that were like... When I watched like network television back in the day, when that was a thing yeah. that people watched, that was on all the time on some channel somewhere. Yeah, and this this isn't even a case where I'll say like, oh, I get the hatred from Moonraker. I kind of don't. I, I think, like I can get if you don't like it, people will like swear like, that's the worst James Bond movie. Guys, I've seen Live and Let Die where Bond steps into, that's his first one and it's sad because you can tell Roger Moore doesn't quite know what to do. Mm -hmm. Busy in his like first scene, he has to go to Harlem and act opposite like, the worst black caricatures 
in a in a you know white person's movie you can get short of blackface sure because yeah. these British people didn't know how to do black exploitation and that's an awful awful movie but like Moonraker is fun it's silly it's got Jaws in it who doesn't love Jaws yeah. it's got the space stuff at the end is ridiculous and it's also some of the best space production design I've ever seen in a film. So you've got that. Like, the special effects in that movie are amazing. There's so much goofiness to it. And Roger Moore could ground all of that. Like, you know, the Austin Powers movies, the kind of James Bond they're parodying is Roger Moore James Bond. And the thing that's great about Roger Moore James Bond is that I think he, as an actor, was very aware he was in silly movies, but could play it as though he was not. Like, there's an emotional center to what he played... And when the movies let that become more earnest, as in For Your Eyes Only, I, he could be just so effective and good in that role. Um, but I think, yeah, that's really what kind of made some of those movies work, including Moonraker. So like, and that is his middle run. I do think those are his, probably his three best are uh, Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only. Those three I would highly recommend. And, you know, some of the others are notable, like Man with the Golden Gun, I don't think is a great film. It does have Christopher Lee as the villain. And that's, that's fun. Yeah. So why not? Octopussy, he dresses up as a clown. That's not the finest moment, but, you know, it's not as bad as A View to a Kill. I mean, sometimes you need to disguise, you need to disguise. Yeah. No, but, you know, Roger Moore was always fun to watch as James Bond. He is an iconic version of that character for that reason. And he appeared in so many other films in the 70s and 80s, too. Um, in, in sometimes James Bond-esque roles, but, but in that kind of, you know, spy milieu. And, you know, he was always enjoyable, and, and you know, people talk about those... Um, you know, nostalgically, I'm, I'm listening to this podcast right now that I really love called 80s All Over. It's by uh, Drew McWeeny, formerly of Hit Fix, and uh, Scott Weinberg. And they do, it's a fun project where every episode of the podcast is they go sequentially through the months of the 1980s and talk about literally every movie that came out that decade. Jesus. It's a, it's a really fascinating, I actually think I like as a historical artifact, it's a great podcast because they grew up in that era. Right. And so you get a lot of, it's a really interesting take on all that. Um, and it's funny, like, through the, just the year 1980, how many times you hear Roger Moore's name come up. And I think that's, you know, he was really a very dominant force in film at that time. So anyway, of course, James Bond is the thing he'll be best remembered for. And again, I just, I, I don't like that the legacy, I think, for a lot of younger people is like, oh, those are the stupid James Bond movies. No, those are the fun James Bond movies. Yeah, like, and I think it's important to note that, like, there is a really big and important distinction between those two things. Like, James Bond has always been goofy and silly yeah. to a certain degree. I mean, the fucking, like, you know, in the Sean Connery movies, you had characters named, like, Pussy Galore. Like, there's yeah. not, like, it's a silly franchise in a lot of ways. And there's nothing wrong with movies emphasizing that and leaning into that. Because it's, like, it's it just as important a part of that franchise as, like, the serious cool gadget stuff or, like, the cool combat stuff. Well, is like, the suave, charming, silly, fun stuff. Yeah, I mean, people forget, Daniel Craig is a great James Bond. He's had exactly two good James Bond movies and two pretty bad ones. And I would put Moonraker above, easily above, Quantum of Solace or Spectre. Like, Spectre actually is interesting because so much of that movie just wants to be a Roger Moore James Bond movie. But it's like, no, we still have to be gritty. And it's like, no, if you tonally tweak this enough, I think that script could work as a super silly James Bond. I don't think Daniel Craig would be the right person to play that. Yeah. But, like, it's like, you know, some of the best moments of Spectre are moments where I could put Roger Moore in it mentally. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you just, like, to me, the essential James Bond movies are, like, 
you pick a Sean Connery one out of a hat. Let's right. say Goldfinger. It's actually not my favorite. From Russia with Love is better. But either one of those. And then get The Spy Who Loved Me. And get um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And then pick a Timothy Dalton one just because they're insane. And then uh, Casino Royale. And you're good. Yeah. And we, you can skip Pierce Brosnan, even though those ones are fun. Pierce Brosnan is basically Roger Moore, but not as interesting. <laughs> it's kind of my review of the Pierce Brosnan movies. Okay. But yeah, so sad Roger Moore, 89. He will be missed. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's always fun and interesting and, and kind of heartwarming about these kinds of moments is when a celebrity like this passes away and then people get like have this opportunity to like share their stories about him. And that has been something that's been really cool to see is how nice of a guy he was and like that's always like we talk about this a lot when these kinds of things happen that you never know with celebrities sometimes of like is like how is this person actually in their life and there's always this like weird tension when you find out oh like this guy i like who's like this actor i like or this director i like or something they they're apparently they're a total dick all the time to everybody and but all there's like beautiful stories about roger moore and like his interactions with fans and his family and his friends. And he was much more out there, like, as James Bond at conventions and yeah. things like that. Then, you know, Sean Connery has disappeared from the face of the earth, and I don't think anyone knows where he is anymore. But Roger Moore, at least, you know, a little earlier in his life, was out there, and those stories exist because I think he genuinely, even if he got tired of the role eventually, as anyone would, he loved that part and what it meant to people. Yeah. So, yes, he will be missed. But let's go ahead and move on to our next piece of news. Talk about something a little stupider. Uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, which we're looking forward to, yes, released its 75th trailer. It's, it has been a lot of, yeah, trailers. Uh, I am, it was a good trailer, right? Yeah. Good, looks good. I, I still think that, I think Sony has a weird, like, uh, marketing strategy here where they are trying to release every second of footage from the movie in some form before it comes out. It has been, like, it's especially weird, like, how little, like, shared footage there are between the three trailers yeah. now that you feel like usually... Like, you know, a movie gets multiple trailers, but I feel like usually, like, at least half of those trailers are all, like, the exact same scenes in a slightly different order, and then, like, the other half is, like, some new stuff, and this feels like you are getting, like, mostly new stuff, and, like, not just mostly new stuff, you're getting new stuff that is recontextualizing old stuff you saw, because it's basically longer versions, or, like, the scene right before the scene you saw in the last trailer, so you get, like, the context for it in a way that, like... I don't think it's going to be an issue because this does not seem like a movie that's like it's not going to be built on plot twists. Like it seems like hopefully it's just like a fun Spider-Man movie that doesn't matter if you know what the plot is. But it does seem weird that they're giving like that much away in the trailers. I mean, I think they're what I can tell is they're really trying to sell that this is a different Spider-Man movie. Yeah. Every one of those seventy-five trailers has really pitched a different angle of Spider-Man that is like here's a version of Spider-Man that you did not get. In the Sam Raimi or Mark Webb movies. And I do think that's valuable as a marketing strategy. Yeah. It does feel a little deluge at this point. Especially because we're a month out. Yeah. And like people who keep saying, final Spider-Man trailer, fuck off. You don't, you, one, you don't know that. Two, there's a, over a month to go. It's not the final Spider-Man trailer. You know, yeah. put your pants back on. Well, you know, and, but then they're going to have like the 27 Spider-Man TV spots that, yes. that everyone gets to write their articles about. So Exactly. But uh, we got that and that was fine. But we also got an amazing awful poster. Yeah. Like it was basically, because I assume Sony is at the head of the marketing for this movie because it's technically theirs. From yeah. a, I mean, it's Marvel, you know, produced it, but it is Sony as a corporate entity. And you can tell it's Sony trying to do the Marvel poster design. And look, the Marvel posters are not great or anything, but they're like serviceable they're, they're enough. They're legible. They're legible. Posters. You look at that poster and you know immediately 
those are like I know who the main characters of this movie are. Yeah. I know like what kind of movie it is. I get like I you can glean a lot of very basic information about those movies just by the poster. Like they're not like great pieces of art, but they are effective for what yeah. they are. And they have this trend of just like, you know, the main character front and center and a bunch of other characters and they have the cast list and all that. The Spider Man homecoming poster tried to do the same thing. But couldn't decide if they were advertising a Spider-Man movie or an Iron Man movie or possibly a Zendaya movie. I don't know. That poster is hilarious. Because yeah. I saw it and I thought it was fake. Like did, I, I scrolled yeah. through on Twitter and I'm like, oh, that's a fan poster. And as a fan poster, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, whatever. But then I was like, oh, that's the real one. And then I saw the world of all the fan posters based on this poster and had a good you know, afternoon laughing at them. Yeah. So... What's wrong with it, Sean? <laughs> it's just it's just unbelievably overstuffed. Like it's something where that's the reason why I use the word legible for the Marvel posters, which is like usually the word legible for any piece of like visual media is not a compliment. It's like a bar. <laughs> that's right. like that's the standard. It's like you are legible. Congratulations. Like you like are in part of the discussion now because I know what you are. I looked at the Spider-Man Homecoming poster is like this is I don't is this a poster like yeah. uh, the, is this a Spider-Man poster is this is I don't like I said like is this a fan thing is this like I it's just a mess of colors of random figures that it's it, just you can't quite read what it is trying to be the funniest thing to me is that there's no center to the poster so yeah. like you have Spider-Man in costume in the top left but in the top right, you have Robert Downey Jr. as just out-of-costume Tony Stark. And those are the two biggest figures on the poster. And in most superhero movie posters, what that would tell you is that Robert Downey Jr. is the guy in the Spider-Man suit. Yeah. So that's weird enough. They Either have... that or Spider-Man and Robert Downey Jr. are the villains of the movie. Right. Because they're the ones, like, up in the back of yeah. the corners. Yeah. It's, it's like that awful No Country for Old Men, Old Men poster that had Javier Bardem smack in the middle. Yeah. As though the other two were hunting him. Yeah. Do you remember that one? But no, uh, this was, so you have that, that's awful. Tom Holland himself is small in the middle, about the same size as Michael Keaton, but there's also Vulture, not like Michael Keaton yeah. as Michael Keaton, and then the Vulture costume. Then you have Iron Man flying across the bottom. You have Jon Favreau as Happy Hogan, meaning there's pretty much more Iron Man characters on this poster than Spider-Man characters. I think you have Zendaya in there somewhere, who no. I still don't think we know who she's... I guess she's Liz Allen? I'm not sure. I don't know. But, like, yeah. So you have all of that. You have Washington Monument. It's hilarious, because it's just, like, how many... Not even characters. Versions of the same character can we get on here? It's great. Yeah, it's... It's very weird. It would be like if you made a Dragon Ball Z poster and it was Goku, Kid Goku, Super Saiyan Goku, Super Saiyan 3 Goku, Super Saiyan Blue Goku, and that was the whole poster. And they're all versions of Goku. Yeah. Or it's like you have, it's like Goku, Kid Goku, and then like Goten is standing right next to Kid <laughs> Goku. You're like, I don't even know. I yeah. don't even know. Yeah. You just have every single character in Dragon Ball Z voiced by Masako Nozawa on the poster. <laughs> and that's already like 15 characters. Yes, it is. <laughs> Anyway, just wanted to make fun of that for a second. Yeah. We're still excited for that I'm movie. I'm super excited for that movie. Like, yeah. the fucking oh, too many trailers and bad poster, whatever. Oh, totally. But it's fun to make fun of when yes. you can. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, still a better marketing campaign than The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I, there's no good way to market that movie. No. But there are probably less bad ones. I mean, but at least with Amazing Spider-Man 2, like, they did get an option of, like, four different movies to make trailers for. Yes. For Amazing Spider-Man 2, because they had so many different plots to choose from that, like, you know, I'm sure as an editor, you're like, oh, this is a great gift. Like, I don't have to be, like, just chained to the plot of this one movie. I have so many plots to advertise in my trailer. It's a little plot buffet. 
But that's what they... That's trailers were trailers for four different movies I in know. one. It was great. It was weird. No. Uh, I'm excited for Spider-Man Homecoming. Let's shift over to video games. Uh, Far Cry 5. Yes. Had its official unveiling this week. We talked about it last week because it was revealed it was going to be set in Montana. And we talked yeah. about that for like five minutes. Uh, now we have like a little trailer. We had a press day with the game. They revealed the cover art and everything. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a thing to talk about. I think it's really interesting. I like the direction they're going in. As someone who's like really enjoyed Far Cry 3 and Far Cry 4, I think there's something about taking this franchise that has like built its... I think this is kind of like what we talked about the, when we just found out about the Montana thing, but like what we have learned about since is like just kind of reinforcing that, yeah, like they are taking this franchise that is generally set in from like an American and Western European perspective, quote-unquote exotic locations like Tibet and a tropical island and saying... What if we set that in the heartland of America? And, like, I don't know how good the game is going to be at actually exploring those themes, but I think there's, like, a certain mileage that you just gain by, like, making that statement in and of itself of, like, the heartland of America can be as just as dangerous or in, like, quote-unquote exotic a place as anywhere else on the planet. Like, it's not... You're not automatically safe because you're here. You're not, like... Like, people are people no matter where they're from. And, like avoiding this weird issue they've had of like really heavily othering like these different cultures is set in like foreign locations bringing it home i think there's something like inherent in that choice that is really interesting to me i agree but i also look at that key art and i see an absolute minefield of really complicated ideas sure. and coded imagery that is extra heightened at this moment in time and an Ubisoft open world game is the last thing on earth I trust to explore that with the adequate sensitivity. But, like, to me, it's better than just, like, the same old colonialist bullshit that, like, they've been pulling for, like, ever with this franchise. Like, if they may, again, they might not, like, have the most elegant, I'm not going into this expecting they're going to have the most elegant of execution of all of these ideas, but it's like... At least they're going for something, which is something that I think like Far Cry 5 in particular needs to do because Far Cry 3, like I think Far Cry 4 is a definite step up from Far Cry 3, but it was definitely in both the gameplay sense and in some ways the sort of like narrative material was too much of the same thing again. Yeah. And it's like going well, for it, I think, is a much better idea than just like, you know, going to, well, now we're going to, instead of it being a tropical island or it's, it's Tibet, instead we're like, I don't know, setting it fucking in madagascar or like just like some other random place that's like we don't have to worry about the actual culture of like politics or like the specific instances like issues with this area that we have basically no actual idea of as like a like canadian french studio or whatever like being able to say like well let's like take it somewhere closer to home both for like the studio and the audience that's like at least america I, I would love for it to be set in France, like French Canada, and just have them be like it's just fucking Quebec. Like, like let's do it. Like, like you go and shoot up the Ubisoft offices or something. Let's go fucking really weird and meta with it. But yeah, I mean, but you know, but there's a reason why like the Ubisoft Montreal games have the reputation they have sure. for some cultural insensitivity in in Watch Dogs and in Assassin's Creed games and in things like this. So. I don't know if those are all Ubisoft Montreal, but, you know, no. different Ubisoft studios. But, like, you know, look, the Far Cry key art is always intentionally provocative, I think, in annoying ways. I think the Far Cry 4 cover is gross. Sure. And I think 
when you play the game, the game is much less gross. It yes, has yeah. it has its problems with its colonial themes, absolutely, but it is not anywhere near as as gross and unseemly as I think they they made the cover out to be. And I think this game could be that too. But I mean, they're you know they are playing with religious imagery and with you know racist stuff and and you know cult stuff and and yeah. the history of like clan imagery in the United States and stuff like that. And those are things that are you know interesting ideas to play with. I just, you know, yeah, it's, and, and I don't know if Far Cry can completely get away from that in, in kind of the kinds of games it's set up to yeah. make, um, but it is, you know, ultimately the Far Cry games are like these super heightened cartoony kind of gameplay mechanics and stuff on real world locations, and that's always going to be an uneasy set of kind of opposites to play yeah. with. But yeah, I don't know. I just my initial reaction was I don't know if I would want to step into that minefield as a developer. But if they want to, go like, ahead. I would, like in, I would much prefer this to like what they normally do with this stuff. Like I think there is again, I just think there's like an inherent statement based on like the history of this franchise and how it typically picks its settings that feels so appropriate for this moment. To like actually say, you know what, fuck it, like. We're not going to pull this like bullshit of of America being isolated from all these other issues in the world, and America being like this perfect, safe like haven. It's it is just as susceptible to all like these human failings as anywhere as like the, this mercenary group that takes over a tropical island, or as the civil war in Tibet. Like, there's no reason why you can't set it in America and and sort of talk about those kinds of themes. But here, I think like that's. Again, I just think it's a much more interesting direction to take than to do the same thing again just on some other tropical island or some other, like, exotic relocation for America. Sure. And and absolutely, like, if nothing else, it is a pitch of a direction. Yeah. And we'll see where it goes with that. The game is coming out in February, right? Uh, yeah, 2018. Yeah. I- interesting that they are... I don't know if Ubisoft has a... We don't really know what their plans for the fall are if we're going to get that next Assassin's Creed or yeah, not. Yeah, I would guess that that Assassin's Creed is going to come out this fall and it'll be yeah. E3, but... Yeah, but it seems like that that is an interesting choice for me because 3 and 4 were both fall releases, right? I think so. I don't remember. Yeah, so Probably. I know Primal then came out in like April or something. Yeah, so. Primal was a February game for sure. Yeah. yeah. And frankly, as we saw this year, like the February time slot into March and April is getting even more crowded than the fall. So we'll yeah. see what happens there. But yeah, uh, I mean, you know, it could be interesting. Um, we'll see. I, I, They definitely, they really put a lot into their key art for this series. Sure, yeah. Yeah. We'll see, we'll see if they bring that ethos to the next Assassin's Creed. Is the next one going to be in Egypt? Is that what we've heard? Yes, the next one's going to be like ancient, ancient Egypt. I think it's like from like 2000 BC or something was like the rumor I heard. Oh, they could make something really problematic with that. Sure. They, mean, should, yeah. they should go heavy with that. Just have someone like drinking out of a peasant's head. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, I'm pretty sure that's what the hieroglyphics all like are basically boiled down to. If you like really study it, it's all about peasants' bloodhead. I want in the next Assassin's Creed the collectible of, or one of the ten collectibles in that game, to be cat pictures on the walls that you go around and find. And they're like cat memes, but done as hieroglyphs. I think that's oh, really Jesus what they need to Christ. do. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It, that is a horrifying idea of like taking the worst excesses of like modern internet culture and stuff and like applying that to stereotyping ancient Egypt. Yeah. Is, 
a terrifying idea. All right, let's move on. Uh, another video game thing. The Nintendo Switch video game ARMS, which is coming out later in June, had its global test punch this week. And it's actually going on for the next week. Um, same thing as the Splatoon 2 global test fire. Which, as you said off the air, should really have been the test splat. Yeah, if they're following this. Because I don't think... People didn't think much of that test fire name when it first came out. Because we didn't know it was going to be a whole thing. Their whole theme. Test fire, test punch, test cart. I don't know, yeah. I mean, I respect them for, like, you know, the word beta has become so dirtied and meaningless in in modern video game parlance. That they're like, yeah, fuck it. We're just going to use something. We're not going to even bother with that word anymore. But like the Splatoon 2 test fire, this one is like a series of select times and days. So like an hour here, an hour there at different times so that people around the world can get in. And like that one, uh, I did get to play some of this. Um, and it runs really, really smoothly. Uh, you know, the game looks good. It's running, at, I think it's running 60 frames per second. The online connection was very solid. Totally, like Splatoon 2, I had absolutely no problems for like the, the half... I played this for like a little less than I did Splatoon 2. I've only played about half an hour so far. This has also been out less long, so I might play a little more of it before next week. And uh, But, you know, more than anything, it does give us a chance to play a little bit of ARMS, which is, I think, even more useful than the Splatoon 2 thing because... ARMS does not seem to, like, trailer well. Right, yeah. (laughs) In that it's a very weird, different game, and you want to get a sense for it. And, yeah, ARMS is weird. Really? I think that's a good thing, but I'm not sure. My initial, my reaction to ARMS, I tweeted this after I finished playing the beta, was, it's like if Overwatch were a weird fighting game with batshit crazy motion controls. Okay. And that's what ARMS is. And now, I talked about the batshit crazy motion controls. I only played a couple rounds that way, and then I got my pro controller, and I said, I'm going to try this with regular controls and see if I could actually hit anything. And I did. And the, the regular, like, button controls are totally fine. So, if you hate motion controls, you don't have to use them. Great. So, there you go. It's uh, no controversy decontroversified. I mean, especially, it's nice that you can play the game without the motion controls, because I'm just imagining someone, like, trying to play it on a plane with, like, the two joy <laughs> grips and the thing on, like, the tablet, and just punching the chair in front of them. That would be a whole special kind of hell. But let me explain, like, with the motion controls, because there is, like, so I've seen a lot of debate online of, like, how should you play it, and I do think there's probably a purity where this might be the rare game where people who play with motion controls might have a leg up, hmm. because there is something very intuitive about it, as weird as it is. So you play as these guys with, like, super long arms. And okay. you can choose what kind of fists you'll have at the beginning. They're, like, loadouts. And it's, you can do a different fist for each arm. And you can kind of strategize. Like, this will be just a, a punch. There may be a fist that has, like, three little fists that come off of it. And, like, you wrap around with that or something. But anyway, you hold the Joy-Con sideways. So you don't hold them like you normally would. You hold them like a little stick okay, in yeah. your fist. So that your fingers are on, like, L and R on the button. Okay, yeah. yeah. Like that. And then you can... You don't even use really anything else other than those buttons for it. And you move by moving the Joy-Cons like that, like yeah. back and forth. And you kind of can move around the arena that way. And then, of course, to punch, you throw an arm out, you know, your right arm out, left arm out. And the, you move, you throw a punch. And when you throw it, you can, you know, move the Joy-Con, twist it. And that the arm will move as it's out there because the arms are really long and they can twist around and stuff. If you okay. throw both out and twist, you can, like, get a person in a headlock and then bring them in and smash them and stuff like that. And that animation is fantastic. And then with the buttons, you can use, I think, L to do this little dash thing and R to do a little jump. And you, like, jump in the air and then thrust your fist out and hit someone in the face or something like that. And then ZL and ZR, like the back R2s, basically, you um, 
basically you can do this super move when it powers up, which is another thing that made me think of Overwatch a little bit. Sure. And with your super move, you can like get the person down and then just pummel them and stuff like that. So that's the basic thing with the motion controls. I actually like the motion controls other than movement. I could not for the life of me get like just actually moving around the arena to really work. And I thought maybe this is a game where you just don't move much. But then when I picked up like the pro controller and used just the joystick, again, you don't have huge movement. It's not like a 3D game where you're doing the camera and all that stuff. But I could move very like one-to-one and I'm like, okay, that, that's the part of the motion controls that don't work for me. Otherwise, there is something very intuitive about throwing the punches and getting that kind of precise motion like... The Joy-Cons definitely seem to pick up a lot more motion than, you know, like the Wiimote did back in the day. Like, compare this to Wii Boxing or something. Sure, yeah. Which was just flail endlessly. Yeah, it was like the the Wii Sports game that nobody ever played because it just was like... Yeah. It's the, it's the Wii Sports game that the baby and the dog could play together because it was just like... They, you did, like, they might as well be that because it's not like you can actually, like, affect the outcome of that game. No. Potentially. Uh, but ARMS is interesting. So, yeah, like that's how the motion controls work. If you play with the Pro Controller, you basically hit, you, you throw your punches with L2, R2, and then use the stick once you throw a punch to then move the arm. And that works well enough. And, again, it's very intuitive that you have your left-right button throw the punches, and then you use, like, X and Y to jump and dash and stuff. And it's an interesting little game. I played a couple different game modes. Like, when you're online, it'll put you into a lobby of, like, eight people hmm. and then split you into different matches, and you kind of do different matches against each other. And it seems like because they're some, all basically one on one, right? They're all basically one on one, and they're pretty fast. Okay. So it's the online structure was pretty cool. If you get in and out of these matches very quickly, and you're with like the same lobby of eight, getting matched up in different ways, and seeing who's getting the highest score, like the number of wins. So I actually like how they have like the basic you know hoppers set up. And then there are some other game modes. At least one other I played was there's some volleyball mode. Where the volleyball is, so you're on a team two versus two. Okay. And the volleyball is like a big bomb, and if it lands, it'll blow up and take, you know, health away from the players on that team. That was maybe the most fun I had with the game because it's absolutely insane and it is knowingly insane. Like, this is not precision volleyball or anything. Like, you are madly, like, flailing, and I would, like, hit the ball three times up in the air and then use my other fist to come in and, like, really give it a knock to serve it over. And then, you know, if you actually get it on the ground and it blows up, it's the best feeling in the world. So, really interesting game. I love the graphics. The characters are really kind of fun. I think there's six in the version we were playing. Uh, six or seven or something like that. And they're all fairly different. They play fairly differently. You've got all the different arms to attach uh, or all the fists to attach on your arms and those sorts of things. It definitely seems like a game that has some depth to it uh, that you really could... Like, I don't think I could ever get good at it in this form where you're just doing random online matches. Right. But if I had all the stuff and, like, there's clearly a progression system where you unlock things and put them together. And I think if I had all of that and the single player mode and stuff, it could be a game that could be fun and you could get good at. I am interested to hear, like, what formal reviews are like when it comes out later in June. Because this might be something I would pick up to just play around with because... You know, it's another, like, Splatoon. It's, like, another new Nintendo IP. It's very different than anything I've ever played. You know, it's ostensibly a fighting game, but... It's another way. reason I thought of Overwatch is it's, like, Overwatch is ostensibly a first-person shooter, but not at all. Right. Just like ARMS is ostensibly a fighting game, but kind of not. <laughs> so it's an, interesting, it's an interesting little game, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Um, I might try to play more of the Test Punch, though, as I said... I think in this form, it's kind of hard to... It's, it's like learn on the fly. You know, it's right. trial by fire. So it might not be the best way to learn how to play the game. But it's... You know, if you have a Switch, it's free download. No harm in trying it out. That's cool. Like, I think it's really interesting that it feels like all the big 
new Nintendo properties are really focused on multiplayer stuff. Yep. Which is something that, like, I mean, it took them a long time to get around to, like, emphasizing online multiplayer in their stuff because of their weird online infrastructures for so long. But it's cool that to see Nintendo say, like, hey, this is a thing that people do, that people really like. Let's let's, well, let's take our approach to, like, online multiplayer games. And I think they have a smart strategy because June is ARMS, July is Splatoon. Yeah. And, you know, so you have these two big online multiplayer experiences. And then, assumably around that time, they're going to start getting their, their online service rolled out. Right. And then they're saying in the fall is when that's going to become paid. So it seems like a good way to do this. If getting these two big games out there over the summer and having this kind of multiplayer-heavy summer, we've already got Mario Kart 8 out, for instance. And then, uh, you know, see where it goes from there. You know, from what I've played online with Splatoon and ARMS especially, it is really a smooth online experience and seamless. And that is how it's been with a lot of Nintendo games I've played over the years. There just hasn't been maybe the overall service component around that. Right, yeah, because you're also, like, not, you know, partying up with people and yeah. doing voice chat or anything like that. Like, it's a very straightforward sort of, like, online experience. Exactly. So, you know, maybe... I, I am interested to see what approach to voice chat they ultimately take and yeah. all of that. But uh, I am excited for both this and Splatoon 2, even if, you know, maybe I don't pick them up right away. Just kind of what that does for the Switch. Because the Switch, we've already talked about, I think, ter- terrific launch, really good foundation, already a lot of good games on it. And then we've got these two big ones coming over the summer, and that'll be interesting to see what that kind of does for the community around that console. Cool. Yeah. So that's ARMS, Global Test Punch. It's a good name for a beta. Yeah. Uh, everyone should do that. Like, you know, Call of Duty, Global Test Murder. I don't know. The, for the next Mario Kart game is the Global Test Drift. Yes. No, because the next Call of Duty is World War II, Global Test PTSD. <laughs> yes. Was that too dark a joke? There you go. Yeah. Okay. Um, Alright, last bit of news Just a really quick thing to note Star Wars turned 40 this week 40 years old? Yeah, it came out, you know, this week, 1977 Kind of crazy Star Wars has officially turned 40 That's old, as I'm told And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's just That's a big milestone for everyone's favorite franchise And it is it's, it's something you don't think about Because Star Wars is sort of bigger now than it's ever been Right, this thing is 40 fucking years old. Yeah. You know, that is pretty crazy. And, yeah, it's... Jesus Christ, like, it's, it's just really, like, when you think about it. Then, like, think about how much what Star Wars is as a franchise has changed so much over that span of time and the different eras of Star Wars fiction. And now, you know, for till we are both well, like, dead and buried in, like, dust... And, and, like, the Earth is mostly destroyed. We are going to get one Star Wars movie every single year. It's just, like, <laughs> it will never... Disney will never waver in their mission to put out a new Star Wars movie every single year. Han and Chewie read the phone book. It's, like, at some point... It's, I'm curious where... Because it, it's, it's just, just... it's As someone who's... I mean, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast because Star Wars comes... Has, weirdly enough, Star Wars comes up a lot over the past couple of years. Like, I'm a huge, huge Star Wars fan. And it's, like... It is both, like, the best and, like, weirdest time to be a Star Wars fan because, like, Star Wars video games are coming back in a way that, like, the last big Star Wars video game before the Star Wars Battlefront, which is the first game of, like, this new era, was, like, Star Wars The Force Unleashed, I think, and, like, The Force Unleashed 2. Yeah. Those came out in, like, 2007 or 2008 around there. So it's, like, this franchise was pretty dormant for a while, and now it's, like, 
EA has the license. There's like five Star Wars games in development. There's a movie every single year. The like the Last Jedi for this year, like those trailers are or that trailer has been really good. And even if I haven't really, I didn't love either Episode Seven or Rogue One. It's I'm I'm definitely feeling very excited about how things are going. Yeah, and what's also fascinating about a moment like this, anniversary wise, to me, is that you start hearing the stories of everyone who was there day yeah. one. And you remember, go back 40 years, Star Wars is just a movie playing in theaters. Yeah. And everything was different back then in terms of distribution. You know, like, Star Wars technically came out May 25th, 1977, but most people didn't see it on May 5th, 1977, because movie distribution was, it rolled out slowly over the country over months and months, and then had lots of reissues and stuff like that, and there's no home video yet, or anything like that. So at that time, you know, Star Wars is just a movie, you could also go buy the novelization, and there's no other like extended universe. It's yeah. just this suggestion of something bigger. And I think that is the most amazing thing about that movie is that it suggested something so large that like the Big Bang, it is still exponentially expanding as time goes by. Yeah. I mean, it did just it just created this universe where I feel like every single author of from the like from the for the last 40 years now has made at least one Star Wars spin-off novel. I think it's like you can't write a book and have it be published unless you sign some dark contract that at some point you're going to have to pay your blood price and write a Star Wars spin-off novel. It's just it's the way that the literature business works now. Absolutely. I can't wait for George R. R. Martin's. It's going to be it's going to be fantastic. It's, it's going to take him 20 years to write. It's going to be 2000 pages long. Well, you know, they since uh after the the LucasArts buyout, Disney sort of like you know purged the canon, and so the old Chewbacca death of like him being crushed by a fucking moon is now out of the canon. So like that's I feel like that's like a challenge to George R. 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 Martin to be like a song of ice and Wookiees. Yeah, like you know Chewbacca's still fucking alive now. Like he's alive again, which means like in a weirdly sadistic way, all the old characters that had been killed off in the expanded universe now they're alive again. So we have to find another different way. To kill off all these characters that used to be alive and then killed. Yeah, but no, it it is such a testament, I think, to yeah. George Lucas's original vision that it has proven that malleable, that it literally reshaped the entire business of Hollywood, and we are still living in the after effect of Star Wars. I think we are possibly 40 years on in the waning days of the model it ushered in. Yeah, that's as, your point. As evidenced by the box office receipts for Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. In theaters now, but no one's seen it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's like... I, I read the Wikipedia summary for the plot of that movie because I was so curious about... I Like, I don't know anything about what happened in On Stranger Tides, even though I'm pretty sure you told me the whole plot of that movie I, I don't about think, four times. I don't think anyone who worked on that movie or this one knows what happens in On Stranger yeah. Tides. But I'm going to just spoil the post credit scene for Pirates of the Caribbean 5 now because I don't yeah. know if you know what it is, Jonathan. Oh, I did the same thing. Fucking Davy Jones is the comes back. That is the post credit scene. Like Bill Nye, Davy yes, Jones. Yes, yes. Davy Jones from Pirates 2 and Pirates 3. The Pirates movies. That should have been the last Pirates movies. <laughs> the villain who, through some series of events that I don't think any human being really understands what the plot of the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie was. But through some series of events. Because I went back and reread the Wikipedia summary for that movie. And still don't really understand how he dies at the end of that movie, or like what the uh, whole the way the curse is and Calypso God, and all this bullshit to... work in his heart in a chest. It's should I try it? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. 
Will Turner, the Orlando Bloom character, yes. his father works on Davy Jones' ship, right? Yes. He's one yes. of Bootstrap Bill. Bootstrap Bill Turner, right? He's a good character. I like that. Stellan Skarsgård. Yes. Uh, at the beginning of like his Hollywood revolution. I yes. love it. Came off some Lars von Trier movies, did some Hollywood. It's great. No, um, so he has that. And Will Turner, so, so Jack Sparrow wants to stab the heart of Davy Jones, which is in that chest, which is what they were fighting over in the second film. Yes, the dead because, man's chest. Because he could become the new Davy Jones and be immortal, and Jack Sparrow, for reasons that are not ever properly motivated, wants to be immortal. Yes. All right. Yeah, that's, but, the, that's basically the plot of the second movie. Yes. But then in the third movie, what happens is Will, on the battle at the end with all the Calypso shit, he, like, gets shot or something, and he's mm-hmm. going to die. And so Jack Sparrow, like, in the like end of his character arc, gives Will the heart and makes him stab it. So Will saves his own life, kills Davy Jones, and then becomes the new Davy Jones. And then once every ten years, he can come back to land and fuck Kira Knightley. I think that's it. But there's a whole goddess Calypso. Oh, yeah. That, there's all that stuff. There's, like... You could cut that out of the movie and it wouldn't make a difference. Yeah. Anyway, Star Wars is cool. Yes, and... Pirates of the Caribbean 3 at World's End just stole the beginning of Return of the Jedi. So somehow it's all, this conversation was all cogent in some way. You want to talk some Doctor Who? Let's talk about Doctor Who. All right. Uh, Doctor Who, I have not said a word to you about this episode. No. So I don't even know what you thought. It's the Pyramid at the End of the World, written by Peter Harness and Stephen Moffat. Yes. Um, Sort of a part two of what's... Going to be at least a three-part story. Yeah, sort of a part three, if like where you count oxygen because that's where the blindness thing came sure, in, yeah. and this is all dealing like with the fallout and in a lot of ways of that character choice. Yeah. If this has been a weirdly interconnected Doctor Who season in ways that I don't think any of us really thought, no, coming into it, but in a way that's really cool. Yeah. So spoilers from here on out. But basic question: What did you think of this episode? I liked it. I think it's, to me, it's not as strong of an episode as the past couple of ones have been. I think it's like, it has some really good stuff. It also has some of like, it, it makes a lot of sense that Peter Harness is one of the writers on this episode because I feel like it has some of the things that have been good about his episodes, but also has a lot of the stuff of like the side characters being very bland and kind of not very like human characters like they feel like very much like stand-ins some of that stuff there are some like i think the the plot of the episode sort of toes a really interesting line of like on one hand part of the point of the episode is the idea that like you know a lot of very like innocuous or seemingly innocuous little mistakes or things that happen at the time can cause big chain effects that that then can cause the end of the world at some point that's kind of part of the idea of the plot of the episode and so that's fine, but also there are a couple of character choices and things that characters do that, like, step a little bit over the line of being like, that's a little bit too stupid. That's just a little bit too, like, I can't quite accept that this person would do that. And so, like, it has some of those issues, but at the same time, I think, like, all the stuff with the Doctor is fantastic. I think, like, all the stuff with the ending of the episode is really great. And there's something very fun about the episode. I think there's something about... This sucker moves. Yeah, it really moves fast. And there's something about the overall plot. Like, it's like the plot specifically of like the weird biochemical lab and everything going on there just feels to me like they somehow like took the B-plot from a Godzilla movie and made it the, the B-plot of a Doctor Who episode. And it seems like I feel like that should be bad. But I fucking love it because, of course, it's me. But like I think it somehow really works. Like it's got a very... 50 sci-fi kind of plot there that I really like. Yeah. Like, even when 
I think there are like elements of the episode that frustrates me. I think I was very entertained by it all the way through, and I'm really excited to see what the next episode does. I think it does a great job of like like with the last episode, Extremists. I think this does a really good job of being its own episode, but also setting up another episode and sort of like passing off a baton that is really exciting. And yeah. This is like the second Doctor Who episode, or like I guess this is the third Doctor Who episode in a row where when it ended, I was like, "Holy fucking shit! I cannot wait for the next episode." Because it's like. I'm actually blind. Holy fucking shit. It's like, this has all been a computer simulation and I just sent the computer simulation to the doctor. Holy fucking shit. And then it's like, I guess like the world is now owned by aliens now. Holy fucking shit. Like yeah, every um, episode ending has been ex- like exceedingly more and more ridiculous and really cool. Yeah, I really liked this episode. Hmm. I, I think it has some issues. I would not put it above Oxygen or Extremis or Knock Knock. So yeah. I'd put it more on par with like the first three of the season. But I really like this. I think, for one, Doctor Who is just going places at the moment. It yeah. has not gone before, certainly at least in the modern era. And it's just there is a level of unpredictability to the things that are happening on the show at the moment that I find wonderful. I think there was some material in this episode that just soared for me. Like, I think the monks are great villains. I think they're probably one of the most interesting monster creations Moffat has ever had. Other than, like, I would put them up there with not, they're not as good as, like, the Weeping Angels. Mm -hmm. But if I'm thinking of great Moffat monster creations, you have, like, the Weeping Angels and you have some other things, but a lot of them have kind of, like, the silence were an interesting idea that never really went anywhere. I like the monks. I liked them last week. I love this week that they live in a fucking pyramid and you go inside and they're like the fates from Greek mythology and they have all these strands. And I love their whole, like, dialogue of like we can only consent can only come from love and like they're so bizarre and freaky but also weirdly logical about how they go about things i like them as enemies and i'm excited to see them be the like proper antagonists next week because even here they're not really the threat yeah altogether and i find that interesting i, I liked i, I want to say that you can kind of easily see which parts of the episode harness wrote and which parts moffat yeah. wrote and I don't want to say that directly because oftentimes we are wrong about those things yeah. and because who knows until you actually look at the script or something. Um, and in general, I would say the more Moffity things are the things I liked more this time, such as the Doctor's speech at the beginning or yeah. the whole ending sequence of events or I think the stuff in the pyramid feels extremely Moffat-esque to me. And then the Peter Harness stuff feels more like the stuff, you know, with... There's no unit in this episode, but your unit stands in stand-ins. You know, you have the UN and you have the different armies and all that. And I enjoy that stuff too. I think it's, it's rushed and some characters make incredibly stupid decisions. Like, I think all three of the army people felt way more caricatured than I think anyone probably wanted them to. Yeah. Especially for kind of the overall plot and thrust of the episode to work. Um, but I also think that the different pieces that are set in motion get us to a really, not just a great ending, but an ending that I think is very thematically on point and yeah. pays off some interesting things. And I do really like that there's this kind of subversive streak to this episode as well, which is, okay, this is kind of a typical, again, there's no unit, but it's like a unit story where pe- military people have to get the doctor in to help them with a the problem. And the doctor comes in and they try all these different things and we know that story. We've seen it a million times. Yeah. But in this one, the actual threat is not the thing over in that pyramid. And I like the amount of time it takes. Like, I think the doctor knows that for a while. But I like the time it takes to really 
get to that point and we keep cutting to the lab and I, I actually think the two best side characters introduced here are the two people in the lab yeah. especially the, the female character she's great and I, I love her weird chemistry with the doctor at the end where yeah. he's so manically happy he's just like being a romantic with her yeah. that was funny and um, yeah and all that is interesting and how it pays off with the doctor and Narduel's plan and getting there and everything that happens uh, I think this episode echoes uh, Face the Raven from last year in super fascinating ways at different points. And, uh, yeah, I, I liked it. I, I Again, yeah, I, I would agree probably with most of your criticisms as they'll come up of things that are rougher in this episode. Yeah. I also think it's just, like, super entertaining hour of tele- television. Absolute crackerjack of an episode in that it just moved. I found every scene entertaining, even if dumb things happened in those scenes. This was... You know, this just felt like a really fun episode of Doctor Who that had more heft to it, especially because of the ending, but because of some other things he did throughout than most episodes have, uh, in this form at least. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so where, where do you want to take the discussion from here? Um, one criticism right off the bat, I will say, this episode didn't know how to start. Because it's, the, it's yeah. like the most incoherent opening three minutes of Doctor Who I think I've ever seen. And that's okay because it led to an interesting place. Like I like that Bill keeps getting cock-blocked basically by the Doctor, but not by the Doctor. Like yeah, by it's, it's by looking. like the, the driftwood that the Doctor's yeah. life creates just yeah. keeps on washing up in her bedroom somehow. Exactly. And it's like clearly she has a good thing going with this date. And then, the, and then this time it's just full-on paramilitary people come yeah. in. So yeah, uh, I like that. But then there's like the the recap bleeds into the actual episode in yeah, weird cross cut ways. Yeah, because it's basically it's they do this like previously on and like what's happening right now thing intercut together. Where like the previous stuff was what happened in the computer simulation in the last episode, and then this is like kind of saying like, well, this is what is actually happening. In like the present time, like like I guess we're supposed to assume that this is the same relative time point where that simulation was supposed to be occurring because she's on the date with the same girl. Yeah, I think like that's basically what it's establishing and kind of reminding you that like right everything that happened in the last episode did not like literally occur for the characters we've been following for the other episodes. Yeah, so that was interesting. Even if like I said the cutting was all over the place there. Once the episode settles into a groove. I think this has a fun setup. There's a pyramid yeah. in the center of, of this area where you have these three militaries, America, China, and Russia. And they call the doctor in because he's the president of the earth in these situations, which I think is a weird but kind of fun and goofy undercurrent of the Capaldi years. Yeah, like they've just kept it going long enough that like I've just accepted it. Like I thought it was dumb at first. And I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah. And two notes about Capaldi in this episode. Yeah. One, his first scene where he's in the TARDIS playing the guitar giving a speech. Yes. I want like a movie of that. It's so good yeah. and so cool. And two, his costume in this episode is absolutely fucking amazing because it's mostly his normal costume that he has, like the hobo, you know, hoodie yeah. thing, robe, whatever you call it. But then he's wearing a red shirt, and there's something about that specific red shirt that is so neat. It, like he's either like a Rolling Stones member or a pirate. I don't know, but when you add the sunglasses and the hair to it, he just looks so cool. I want actual human being Peter Capaldi declared the president of Earth. I think we'd be in a better circumstance. I mean, yes, we would definitely be in a better circumstance. I, if you've ever seen interviews with Peter Capaldi, he seems like a very kind, thoughtful person. <laughs> that, like, yes, we would be in a much better circumstance uh, than, than we are right now. But yeah, like, I think it's something that... Um, I think, like, this whole season has done a really good job with the Doctor's costuming. Yes. That is, like, I mean, it's something that they tend to do a very good job on this show because it's the main character and it's one of the, like, 
trademarks of the Doctor is that he has cool outfits that sort of obviously update with each of his incarnations. But I love specifically with 12 what they've done with like the very like sort of formal kind of stuck up like version of the costume in season eight. And then he goes full on like rockabilly hobo in season nine. And then by the end of season nine, he sort of like finds his cool, like, like John Pertwee esque costume that he sort of grows into at the end that carries over for the Christmas specials. And now it feels like he, like enough time has passed for him where he just kind of swaps between the two interchangeably or like mixes them together. Sometimes he goes out wearing a top hat when he's in Victorian days. Like he just gets this sort of like very much, I think, he has this very natural feeling costume that he has really evolved in over the course of these three but, seasons now. That it's just like they're able to switch like switch up what his specific outfit is every single episode and it like adds something to like whatever is going on in that episode. They kind of experimented with this in, in Matt Smith's last yeah. half season where they gave him a new costume, but it was more like a costume philosophy where it wasn't literally the same clothes every time, but it was similar. Yeah. And I feel like they've really run with that in the Capaldi years, and I think it's one of the best things because, frankly, I think it gives him more flexibility as a performer in a lot sure. of ways. Of like, Because the clothing does so much of the work for an actor in these kind of cases. It's how you wear it and how you move with it. And I think he gets to bring a lot of very different things to the table because of how that gets to you know move around. Like... This costume is so fascinating to me about the Doctor's current mindset in that that red shirt in no way goes with what he's wearing, like, formally. He doesn't even have it tucked into anything. Like, that is part of, like, a more traditional Doctor Who ensemble. But he's got, like, the hoodie robe thing over it and the sunglasses and everything. And it's like he's clearly stuck between different extremes. And that clothing, I actually think, allows him to play a lot of interesting notes. Because I'm joking about how cool Capaldi is here. If you're to break down his big moments in this episode... Some of them are funny and some of them are cool. A lot of them are tragic in different ways because of how fucked up the Doctor is at the moment. Not just being blind, but feeling very vulnerable. And I think Capaldi is really good at using the the, the clothing ensemble as part of his performance. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 worth noting not just because it looks cool and I wish I was as cool as Peter Capaldi, but uh, it's really I think part of the episode. Yeah, no, it's like the the costume design for this whole season has been absolutely outstanding. I think. Before we forget, more outstanding yeah. production design. Yeah, just every fucking week. You know, probably less to do this week because it's a little more traditional kind of things. But then you go in the pyramid and it's cool. Yeah. So and the again the monk's room with like the strands of fate. That was an awesome image. Yeah. But anyway, so we have all that with the Doctor. He and Nardole and Bill go off to the pyramid together. And uh, yeah, so, so let's talk about that side of the episode. Okay, yeah. There's different ways to tackle this. I think we'll come back around to the lab and everything later on because it doesn't kind of intersect until later. Yeah. But like, let's talk about that side of the episode that we have this alliance. We have the Chinese, the Russian, and the American people. I don't yeah. know if they were generals. I don't know if they were foot soldiers. I don't really know what their positions were. I did like the UN dude until he made yeah. a really dumb decision later in the episode, but he seemed cool. I did I think actually you could feel the absence of unit because even if yeah. a unit story isn't all that much fun, you can get like unit has like a hierarchy that you just can understand even if it's completely goofy and insane. And this didn't have that, and it did feel a little weird to me. Yeah, I like. I don't. I feel like there's probably some reason why they didn't have Kate Stewart in this episode. Like, I don't know if like that actress was not available or something like that. Because I feel it feels very much like she would have been more or less in the role the UN guy was in. Obviously, like she would not have gotten disintegrated yeah. in the episode. But like, 
I agree. Like it's something that Unit brings a certain level of familiarity, especially because like Unit has been around in New Doctor Who for long enough, and specifically this incarnation of Unit has been around long enough and has interacted with the, this Doctor specifically heavily enough because they've had significant episodes in all three of, or like in his first two seasons, I guess. And uh, they, maybe they'll make another appearance later in the season. Who knows? Because that's the other possibility is that they needed Kate somewhere else in the season, and yeah. It was more pressing she'd be in that episode or yeah, something. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, I do, I do agree with you. You feel there's sort of loss of being able to familiarize yourself in this location. It feels like a very small version of this that there's like, are there really only three people dealing with this situation? Yeah, you don't get the sense of the size of this like standoff or whatever is going on here about around this like supposedly strategic piece of land in the middle of nowhere for whatever reason. They, like They're just like... There's these three standing armies, I guess. I don't know. Like, maybe that's how geopolitics work, is that you just have three generals standing, like, around this, like, one fucking, like, two-square-mile plot of land, and they just sort of stand there and do nothing. I don't know. I mean, there's plenty of, like, you know, DMZs that are, would be kind of like that. But, yeah, yeah it, they, but it just feels like... I feel like they don't get a good... They don't do a very good job at sort of selling that. And it's, you know, I think it's this episode has an issue with its length of, like, it feels like it needs more time to set up some of those ideas. But it's a thing that Unit, since we're already familiar with those characters, you don't have to do that groundwork. And it's something that I think Peter Harness, like, one of the failings of a lot of his episodes, like, in Kill the Moon, and even I, like, really like his Zygon episodes from season nine, but I think they have issues with this as well, is, like, the characters he introduces in his episodes, I feel like, tend to have this very weird, kind of stoic, or, or like, stolid, just, like, they're, thing to them they're like like they're earlier they're caricatures they're like meant to represent a thing so they're like, pieces on a narrative chessboard yeah and it's something that a lot of the scenes with the generals and stuff reminded me a lot of the scene in I think it was the Zygon invasion where you have the like soldiers going attacking the compound and then the Zygons come out disguised as their like family members and those soldiers just kind of like Okay, I guess you're my mom after like a five minute scene of you like, you're not my mom, you're not my mom, you're just an alien shapeshifter. I guess, okay, I guess I'll come inside. And it's like, it's a scene that feels like, I don't think that scene does not ruin that episode, but like, it feels like it was trying to go for something like more surreal or specific that just couldn't quite nail. It just comes across as like awkward and stiff and weird. And it feels like, I don't buy that this human being, like this soldier guy, one is a human or has ever had parents. Like, there's something about like, the acting and writing and dialogue is very strange. And I feel like that's what these characters suffer from that. In a way that, like, the characters in the lab don't. Like, the characters in the lab feel, like, very natural and real and alive. And so Stephen Moffat at least did a pass on those scenes. Yeah. They, they feel very Moffat-esque. Yeah, and so it's like it becomes... I think it's something that is almost worse... Or, like, it, it's more jarring in this episode than it was in like the Zygon episodes because like you're cutting like directly between like oh these like feel like real people and hello I am Russian man hello I am Chinese lady like hello I am Mr. American like what like you're not what like this isn't how people talk and that stuff is awkward I think actually like the thing that was the hardest for me to accept about that side of the episode was after the UN general does a thing where he disintegrates, because I could buy that he does that because that's like he goes and they it's go a panic in, move. Yeah, it's a panic move, and like you know, they go in, they touch the thing, and and they see the vision or whatever. And I've you know you've seen enough Doctor Who to be able to accept. Okay, yes, like there's something about what they experience when they touch this thing that this guy feels like deep, like deeply in his being that this is the future that is going to happen. Like. 
that is something I'm just totally willing to accept. I have no issue with that and characters making weird choices based on this information that we can't process because it's like, you know, it's this weird inter like psychic interface or whatever that we can't really understand. So I'm fine with him making this bizarre choice to like try to surrender. I think they do enough narrative groundwork to like justify that and to then set up, okay, yes, like you really want to love these monks or whatever because if you don't, they're just going to disintegrate you. The problem I have is then when they go back and all of a sudden the American general is there and who was a character that was not introduced up to that point, he didn't do anything, and all of a sudden he kind of like takes the place of the UN guy and sort of leading the human faction, and he then starts making the choices of like, yes, we're going to surrender, when he hasn't even fucking seen the vision. Like, there's no reason for him to believe any of this stuff. And it's something that the, the, the choice these characters have to make is so huge and ridiculous that you need to do a lot of narrative groundwork to really justify them making this conscious choice to surrender the future of the earth and like the, the like free will of the human species to this alien like monk thing that like the, the episode just doesn't have enough time and it's not quite elegant enough to be able to pull that off. Yeah, there's an A to B problem here because points A and B are fantastic in this yeah. episode. The setup is ingenious. Yes. A lot of the pieces of the setup are so interesting on so many levels. Not just uh, the, the pyramid appearing is like a sexy, you know, hook, but what's actually interesting is the monks saying, You are going to surrender, and here's why, and having this scenario, all of that stuff is fascinating. I like that as a setup. Yeah. Point B that it ultimately winds up being on Bill, that the doctor's downfall is is his own Insularity that he never told her about the blindness, that he's too self-confident, that he gets into this situation where the only way to save everyone is to die. Again, I, I want to talk about how that echoes Face the Raven, because I think yeah. they don't note it explicitly, but I do feel that as subtext here, in that he gets in pretty much the exact situation Clara did in that episode, and is trying to say, no, you have to let me die. And the, the what's so beautiful about this as like a tragedy is that he's made Bill love him too much. Not yeah. like him romantically, but just like... You know, Bill cares too much to let him die in this situation, and that's what ultimately winds up being the thing that allows the monks to take over the earth. So point B is really good. But to get from point A to point B, you have to get rid of everyone standing in the way of Bill. Yeah. Right? And so you have to get rid of all those other power structures, and I don't think that can't be done. I think... You, there are plenty of ways you could write that that would be elegant enough to make it work. Yeah. And I actually think one of the things would be if you just had Unit in there, and maybe it's not Kate Stewart because it would be weird to kill her in this yeah. way, but you know something where there's a more identifiable power structure where we can just the buy-in is easier. Yes. Then I think that could work. But you you do have these things along the path from A to B to get the three generals and the UN guy to die. The UN guys move. It's okay. Although I do have issues with that scene in that. It goes by so fast, and we see so little of what they saw. We basically sure, just yeah. see some clips from the trailer of a Terminator movie. It's like it, it, you don't you because you literally don't feel much of what they felt. It's there's a there's kind of a missing piece hanging over a lot of the episode. But whatever with that, and then those other three people just keep making very dumb decisions, and then they seem to make a smart decision when they say we're never going to fight, like we're we're not going to have World War Three right now, yeah. even though it's like you guys. Have no power over that. That's not how yeah. this works. But that, whatever. That felt like a scene where it's like, yeah, what? Like, no, like you can't just like, okay, yeah, like yeah, let's all we'll all be friends now. It's like yeah. that means war is never going to happen. Like, yeah, that scene just felt like it felt like it from like a cartoon or something, like a kid's cartoon. Yeah. And I think there's a 
there are some interest, interesting, like, unexplored possibilities here, too. Like, I like the scene where the Doctor indulges the army people and says, yeah, let's attack it and see what happens. And he's just doing it as, like, you know, scientifically gathering data on the yeah. thing, right? But it's, it is surprising, because the Doctor would usually say, no, don't break out the missiles. But he has them do that, and that's an interesting choice. And I kind of like the idea of the Doctor just seeing these people as pawns on his chessboard and, like, using them in his experiment, like... I think there's a darker, more interesting version of the middle of this episode where he tells them to go into the pyramid and surrender or something like that mm-hmm. because he knows they're not actually going to be able to give that consent or like just humors them in that. And that at least is another level of buy-in we don't have here because they're working with this autonomy that is frankly bizarre because if they've given the doctor the title of president of Earth and he tells them not to do it and they don't listen, why did they ever take that step? You know, like... This is frankly one of the sillier depictions of the whole President of Earth thing because he apparently has no authority. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, to me, ultimately, like, the episode has it where it counts most and that is what is important. But there are those pieces in the middle that do feel rough. But I will say I've just come up with how you could have justified the U.S. general making this stupid fucking choice is that this episode establishes or, like, it, it heavily implies that, yes, in this universe... Donald Trump is the president, and so if you had a scene where the U.S. general is like, we're never going to surrender, that's ridiculous. It was like, well, I have to buy, you know, I obviously have to call the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army, he's the president, I'm like, I need, I don't have unilateral authority here, and then the president is like, just, yeah, surrender, whatever, it's like, okay. You're going to surrender, it's going to be the best surrender ever, it's the greatest surrender, we get it. Yes, it's just like that would have done, that would have been like okay, yeah, no, that makes yep, yes, that is I totally buy this now. Well, let's talk about the Trump thing for quickly. Okay, yeah, there's the line about like I would never vote for him. He's, He's orange, orange, yeah, which is fun. Bill uh, Pearl Mackey delivers that line spectacularly. Yeah, um, do you like that they really explicitly made it Trump, which thus makes the scene in Extremis we just saw Donald Trump die on TV. Yes, it's it's I I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate it because. If you read that scene in Extremis as it being Donald Trump, absolutely, if Trump read that he was just a computer simulation, he would absolutely want to stop living. Yeah. I can, like, I think other presidents would not. He would be like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be responsible for this. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, that would be funny. But we didn't get that. No. So, oh well. <laughs> it happens, you know. Yeah. This is, yeah, I mean, because of those pieces, this is a messier episode of Doctor Who than we've gotten mostly this season. Yeah. Um, none of that is enough to make this like an off episode for me. This is not like uh, Sleep No More last year, where that's the bad episode of season nine. Yeah. This is still a good episode. I agree to me. Yeah, but yeah, let's. I mean, let's talk about where the episode, uh, some of the better things it does. Like that whole side of the episode that is, you know, you start with that Doctor's speech about kind of the strands of fate or whatever, and all the little moments that lead to your death. It's actually very creepy. <laughs> Another yeah. very creepy. Twelve monologues to himself very creepily. Yes. He does not He does not monologue about happy things. No. I mean, but, you know, he's got a lot of stuff going on right now, okay? But I do like the series of events that leads there. I like the, 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 the woman who plays the, the scientist, and she, like, puts her bag down, and the, the glasses get broken, and that leads to this, and I thought she had a good chemistry with the other guy. Yeah. I like that we can have... Um, like dwarf characters on TV and that's not a part of their character. Yeah. She's just a scientist woman and she's shorter and it's not explicitly mentioned once in the course of the episode. That's cool. Yeah, and also like there's a dwarf character in a British show that is not played by Warwick Davis which feels like... <laughs> 
it's like I feel like if you watch enough British TV, he pops up. In, like if that's a, like if the role is asking for that, that is the actor they get. Which I fucking love, Warwick Davis to death. He is fucking awesome. But it is supposed to I mean, be like, oh yeah. No, you're right. I mean, the second most famous British dwarf at this point is Peter Dinklage, and he's actually American. Yeah. He just does a British accent in all his roles. <laughs> That's a very good point. No. Um, but no, I like that actress, and I think, you know, again, whenever you open up a talent pool to more diversity like that, you get interesting performers who you wouldn't otherwise see, and she's very good it, it in It kind this of reminds me of the, um, the blind woman in Under the Flood, and, or Before oh, yeah. the Flood and Under the Lake or whatever, Under yeah. the Lake and Before the Flood. Well, that was like, it was slightly more part of the plot, but it also felt like... No, that's just an incidental thing that, like, this character just happens to be blind. Well, no, she's, she's deaf. deaf. She's deaf, yeah. yeah. The doctor is blind. Yes, the doctor she was blind. Deaf, yes. Deaf. Uh, no. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree on that. And then, and then just the kind of casual rapport of, like, these are two co-workers who probably aren't best friends, but they're friendly to each other. And, you know, all the things that kind of lead up to them accidentally creating a super virus. Yeah. Which, who knows the science behind that, but it's a fun threat for the doctor to have to face. I mean, I, I will totally buy that there are, like, lab science, or, like, there are science labs in the world that if you misplace that decimal, like, something's going to get seriously fucked up. And I did like the body horror of the guy just disintegrating yeah. into a puddle. Yeah. But, again, it did remind It just felt like... This it was one step away from them being like experimenting on G cells or something. It's like it's such a B plot to a Godzilla movie. It was so great. Really, it should have been like in Japan yeah. and been like two Japanese people. Yes, and just all subtitled. Yeah, no, but two Japanese people and then one American person that is actually like has grew up in Japan and can't really speak English that well, but like looks American. So they're like asked to speak the whole world in English, but like you can't understand what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so that's all good, and then I, again, I like the lead up to that where where the the doctor goes with Nardole to the TARDIS, and his whole pl- plan to like blind them and then see what the camera yeah. shows up on was a clever bit of Doctor yeah. Trickery. I, I like that. that. And um, although, again, I'm not entirely sure about the doctor just leaving the army people with all the authority completely unsupervised and with Bill, that was a little weird, yeah. but oh well. Um, because it kind of blows up in his face. But it's a neat scene. And then, yeah, the ending of the episode is fantastic. Yeah. Just there's a good, like, action component to it where I was really, like, not, again, in the unpredictability, I was not sure where this was going. Because you have, you know, Bill in the room with the monks and they are putting pressure on her. But the doctor is very close to solving the situation. They've got this bomb they've rigged up. They're going to blow up the lab. He's got, you know, the woman is over there with the TARDIS behind the airlock. The doctor is jerry-rigging everything. And then he gets there and the way the air, like, drops out of the room when he realizes, oh, it's a lock. And even despite all my, you know, high-tech stuff, I can't see the numbers. That's an amazing moment. Yeah. And it's a moment that kind of... I mean, has any doctor ever had a moment quite like that to play? With that just sheer scale of vulnerability of, like, this tiny little thing I can't do and it's going to cost me my life. Yeah, that's probably the only time I can think off the top of my head something like that has happened. Like, the closest is almost like the end of Caves of Androsani in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that's a regeneration story, you know? That's very directly, like, he's going to die one way or another here. This is... We know the Doctor isn't going to die right this moment. He could. That'd be really weird mid-season. They kept that casting news, like, really under wraps. That's really amazing. Yeah. Uh, Can the Doctor regenerate if he blows up? We don't know. So, yeah. Is he, like, Cell from Dragon Ball Z? Yeah. Where he just needs one brain cell intact? Yeah. And then the Doctor comes back and he can use instant transmission. It's like, oh, this is crazy. This is a really different show. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh... So anyway, I, I think Peter Capaldi played that moment absolutely beautifully as he's just resigned to his fate. 
the way he says to Bill, I lied to you, I've been blind since Omega-3 or whatever, all that stuff, like, he's so kind of of matter-of-fact with it because he just realizes, oh, I've kind of reached the end of my line. Yeah. And this is it, and it has to be this way. It's great. It absolutely echoes the way Jenna Coleman plays that scene in, in Face the Raven to me. I thought about that a lot. And it also reminded me of the end of time or whatever when the Tenth Doctor generates in, in with like Bernard Cribbins' character and yeah. yeah being trapped in the glass cage or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It's a phenomenal scene. And Pearl Mackey's side of it also, she is great because it, what she does is dumb, but you completely understand. And that's the difference between that scene and the scenes with like the generals earlier. Yeah, because no matter what. If you get, like, the Earth person in the room and they consent to the monks taking over the Earth, it's a dumb action. And that's the challenge as a writer, I think, is justifying it. With Bill, it's justified. I mean, would you yeah. agree with that? Because like, I, I think it's something that they have done such a good job of building her up and establishing her as a character. And I do think, like, one of her traits is she has this, like, liveliness and earnestness to her in the way that she has responded towards, like, death in such a very real way. I feel like, yeah, like she would react this way in a way that it would be way harder for to maybe buy like other companions, maybe making quite that choice and like going that far with it. Whereas I can definitely buy Pearl Mackey, like, or Bill, like being so, having such tunnel vision about like, there's no way I'm going to let the doctor die, especially because you'd like, there's so much sort of complicated emotion built into the blindness thing, because obviously like she never says anything, but you, the viewer knows he if you remember that episode, like he's blind because he sacrificed that part of himself to save her. So of course she's going to feel some amount of responsibility for that. And so there's enough emotional, like turmoil wrapped up in that choice that I think like, yeah, she picks like the emotional right choice. If maybe not like the logical right choice. Absolutely. Um, Cause yeah, you're right about like, it's this companion. A lot of companions would make that choice, but at the moment this is very specific to bill because you know, I think if Clara and the doctor got in this situation, at least did like season nine Clara would probably let him die. Like not because she doesn't love him, but because it's like, but she would she is... know that he was probably going to regenerate and she would like True. gamble on that. I yeah. feel it's like the Clara move. Yeah. Because she is like the doctor. She is really at the, by the end, she's like mini doctor, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, you know, Pearl Mackey, uh, Bill is not. And it's, it's a really fascinating moment for that character. And as the moment when they choose to, for now at least reverse the blindness. Yeah. You couldn't do it any better, right? Because it is, no matter what, it was going to be a magical snap of the fingers to make him see again. But this is a magical snap of the fingers that is so immensely character motivated and so loaded that it sends us into the next phase of the story with so much interesting baggage. Yeah, and it's something that it feels like, and and it is something where we, we don't know like what the next episode is going to be like the next time preview made it look like almost like the season three finale finale thing of like oh like the world has been taken over but better yeah i assume it basically has to be better um so like it's there's actually like a weird hole open that maybe if like i feel like there's a weird chance that he might be blind again by the end of that episode if it reverses the events like there's something about the way that is set up that feels like I that would, door is not totally closed. Yet. No, I would not at all put that past this team to, yeah. to do something with that. Yeah, but it does, I think the choice of having like all of that of him, the moment of him reversing his blindness is the moment of him like admitting his blindness and like having to sort of confess to his weakness and yeah. the mistake he has made. 
like that being and then like having to sort of like open up and rely on Bill in a very honest way that he hasn't really done this season like he has been a more sort of standoffish doctor in some ways that like compared to a David Tennant or Matt Smith or like his relationship with Clara was obviously so different because she was pre-existing and when he came in he's not like super intimate with her like he's not telling her everything he's like they're not like she's not living in the TARDIS with him like it's very much like a more old school like almost like first doctor-esque or like seventh doctor-esque like yeah like i'm telling you what i think you need to know about who i am and where we are going and like playing my cards really close to my chest and unlike the seventh doctor who because the show got canceled never had to pay up for that bullshit the doctor has to pay up for it now but like maybe he hopefully he learns his lesson that yeah that's this is going to help you in the long run to be open with the people you're with and and they're like part of your team, you know, they're part of your family. Yeah, but you know, we're also close enough to the end that I, I think he's going to have to pay up for this in more ways than one. Yeah. I am still, if I had to predict, I think Bill's exit is going to be darker than it is lighter. I don't yeah. I don't necessarily see them killing Bill. I, I think that'd be weirdly dark for this character. I, it's got a hell of a fucking episode title there, though. Kill Bill, Volume 3. Like, let's do it. Quentin Tarantino, special guest yes. director. Yeah, no, we see a lot of Bill's feet in that episode, because that's his thing. No, um, It's the most uses of the N-word in any Doctor <laughs> Who episode. It's just really weird. They really went for it. In this episode, Nardole is played by Quentin Tarantino himself, and he drops the N-word. With a bad accent. Yeah. There's no reason for him to have an accent, but... I think Quentin Tarantino just has a bad accent. Like, that's, that's a he, fair point. He grew up wrong somehow. No. Yes, he did. <laughs> um, anyway... Yeah, I, I just, I think, like, I don't necessarily see Bill sticking through the regeneration and being with the next Doctor. She totally could, and that might be a smart thing to do, but I also feel like she is such a good, earnest, normal, well-adjusted person that, especially with a Doctor who is this kind of distrusting and kind of, I think he genuinely cares for her, but I also think he is knowingly or unknowingly kind of using her as a prop in his own story. Yeah. And I think that is a a theme this season. I don't think it's become text yet. I think it's still subtext mostly. But I think there's a moment where that has to become text, and that will be interesting. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I... Great episode... Or great stuff in this episode, even if the episode is a little yeah. rockier overall. But, I mean, God, moments like when Capaldi, you know, 12th Doctor, realizes what's going on in that last scene. Unbelievable. Just yeah. the acting on display here from him, from Pearl Mackey, from Matt Lucas in certain scenes, from the, some of the guest characters in this episode, you know, particularly the two in the lab. Um, whatever weaknesses this episode has, it does not dissuade me from my feeling that Doctor Who is on a pretty incredible role at the moment. Yeah. Although I do want to point out a couple of, like, small other issues I had with this section of the episode. There are other things that, like, kind of with, like, with almost, like, the Kill the Moon stuff with Peter Harness, is, like, there are little tiny, like, logic issues in some of his writing that, like, one is, this is, like, on the edge for me, but it did kind of just annoy me a little bit too much when it happened of when the bad shit happens in the science lab and then they're, like, running out of the room and the dude does not con- close the fucking containment door. Sure, yeah. That kind of drove me... Like, I told... Like, they do a lot of legwork to try to set that up. Of like, okay, like, he's hungover and all this shit and he's, like, hasn't slept and this big emergency that just happened. But it still was, like, leaving it wide the fuck open was, like... 
ah, like it's just like it's just like it's like the plot writing equivalent of nails on a chalkboard to me. It's like you could have just had him close the door, but like because he's like so distracted, he doesn't like seal it all the way or something, and just sure. enough gets out. Like there's there's a much better way to do that than just have it be like all the way open when he it, runs past it. It's like in Prometheus and Alien Covenant when they take their masks off and yeah. shit. And it's an alien covenant is even worse on that because they just go to an alien planet and never put them on. It's like in Dragon Ball Z when they go to Namek, but in Dragon Ball Z that's okay because yeah, it's a silly it's Dragon cartoon. Ball Z, whatever. Yeah, but in Alien Covenant, it's like there's oxygen on this planet. We don't need masks. And then there's an infection from the flowers that it's like, yeah, that's not why you wear the masks. Yeah, it's not just for the oxygen thing. And you could have them wear the masks and find a more creative way to ride around it. But you just skip that step entirely. I don't think that's nitpicking. I think when you just skip a step rather than finding a creative yeah. way around it, that is annoying. Yeah, but it's not a huge issue with the yeah. episode. And this is another thing that, like, I think this is maybe a bit more of a nitpick. But it did take me out of the moment of the end of the episode where it's like, I think that scene is so amazing. There's just, like, one issue I have with it is that there's this, like, what felt to me in the moment. And this is because, like, part of the fun thing about Doctor Who is, like, trying to imagine, okay, like, how are they going to resolve this scenario? Because, like, all you know, as someone who's watched a lot of Doctor Who, I like to think about, like, what, like, ridiculous bullshit are they going to try to pull at the end of this episode to sort of, like, fix this problem? I feel like there was such an unbelievably easy solution to the Doctor's conundrum at the end of the episode of, like, you've got the fucking sonic glasses. Just FaceTime someone and have them tell you what the fucking numbers are. Like, this isn't, this is not an unsolvable situation. You could have made it into an unsolvable situation if you had just, like, covered your bases. And I think, like, the, the, the scene still works on its own, but, like, I definitely had that thought, like, in the middle of that scene. It was just like, you, like, this is not, like, again, like, this is not untractable. Like, you could totally get through this pretty They easily. address it slightly with that he calls Nardole to use the camera feature on those, but Nardole has been knocked out by the yeah. gas. But he doesn't just Correct. need to call Nardole like he right. could have called Bill, like he could have called anybody. And it's like, that's like a little bit like, again, it's not a huge issue, but it was just like this little annoying, like, ah, like, you need to... It's something that, like, happens sometimes, particularly, like, in episodes where, like, you know the prominence of video technology or like communication technology and stuff like that can like mess up a lot of plot structure things that the, the, the like the writer doesn't fully take it into account so it's like i don't think it's a huge flaw but it was just like one of those things that's a little bit annoying that it's a little tiny blemish on an otherwise like incredible scene yeah no i understand so still we are seven episodes deep into yeah. the season and we are seven good episodes deep so I'm looking forward to next week. Yeah, I'm, it looks like next week we're getting a lot of Missy because the, the next yeah. time previews that they opens up that door. That's I mean, exciting, and it is kind of fun to have this like trilogy in the center of the season yeah. that we build to, and then are assumedly going to build out of. And it's not this is the kind of thing you would have at the end of a season. Yeah, and I like that it's in the middle in part because it I think keeps all of us on our toes way more yeah. than if it was at the end because at the end there's certain just coded things that you would expect. And those things aren't necessarily going where we expect them to go. Yeah, and like next episode is written by Toby Whithouse, who he has written some really great episodes of Doctor Who. Like he did yeah. the, the uh, Under the Lake and Before the Flood. He did like the God Complex from season six, which is one of the best episodes from that season. So it's like he's a really good episode or like writer for Doctor Who. And one thing that I think is cool about this season structure is that he is not the kind of writer that would normally be able to write like what seems like it's going to be like kind of like this big crazy episode of Doctor Who that is like. From all of, like, we've seen so far, it seems like next episode could be a season finale in a totally different season. 
that like it's fun to have a guest writer be able to write an episode like that and not have to have it be Stephen Moffat every time when he's the showrunner. Yeah, totally. He's he's uh, shared the wealth a little bit this season, I yeah. feel like, definitely. So, interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, next week on the show, yes, we're going to have more Doctor Who. We're going to have more Twin Peaks. Yes, we are. And, holy fuck, am I excited. I have not been able to stop thinking about the first four episodes since then. Yeah. Same for you? Yeah. yeah there's so much good stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to rewatch them before... Did you see Kyle MacLachlan retweeted this? Someone there's a like a Twin Peaks billboard in New York, like in the underground, and someone wrote graffiti onto it. Hello, yeah, it's great. I love that's the best graffiti ever. Like you know that people who like go to casinos and like like play slot machines and stuff are probably really pissed off about that episode because now every single for like the next fifty fucking years at every single casino, no matter like what time of day you go, there's going to be at least one jackass there that every time he pulls the lever, he goes hello. <laughs> if I went to a casino like that and I pulled the lever and went hello and I got the jackpot. I think I would just go kill myself because my life was never going to get better. Well, that's that's how you know that you're in the computer simulation. Yes, that's, that's, that's true. like the moment where you're like, oh god, that my whole life is a lie. And one last thing I think we'll probably have to talk about next week is the Wonder Woman movie is coming out. Yeah, and it's gotten very good early buzz. Yeah, uh, much much more positive than any other DC movie, and it's gotten the kind of buzz, frankly, I wanted to hear, and that I was most worried about hearing, which is. Women going to see the movie and saying it was good and empowering and, like, what they wanted out of finally having a fucking female superhero movie. And that's good to me. Like, that is something that, frankly, I was worried if, you know, and there's still, who knows what narrative directions it's going to go in. But I'm glad to hear that there's actual, not just like, yeah, that was good, but enthusiasm around that. Uh, And from the people I think this movie matters most to for obvious reasons. Because very underserved uh, clientele. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm planning to see it. Yes, I'll go uh, see it as well. Yeah, and I think we can talk about that. And hey, maybe we'll have nice things to say about a DC movie. Man, that would be weird. I, I would really love to live in a world where we can say nice things about a DC movie, and maybe maybe that is the world we will live in soon. And my real hope, more than anything, is that it's A, good, and B, so completely detached from the other films that I can like put it on my shelf and just pretend there were no other movies. Yeah. There's no Batman v Superman. There's no Justice League. It's just a good Wonder Woman movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, even if they do make this good Wonder Woman movie, I'm sure that they're just going to, the next one, Wonder Woman 2, instead of just making Wonder Woman 2, they're going to follow the brilliant strategy they've done so far and make Batman v Superman v Wonder Woman, and that's the world we're going to live in. And she kills everyone. At least with her, it would make fucking sense. Yes. Well, to a certain degree. No! In the DC universe, Wonder, in, the, in the DC cinematic universe that they have established so far, Wonder Woman killing every single person that is a character in those movies you've seen so far, I am totally fine oh, with Oh, I'm that. okay with that. Yeah, okay, I see yes. what you mean. I see what you mean. That's like, the, she needs to go put down that Batman. She needs to go, like, put down... I, I mean, she doesn't need to go put down that Superman. Like, that Superman's just gonna go kill himself at some point because of how pathetic he is. Like, <laughs> kill Lois Lane for being as stupid as she is. Kill Lex Luthor, because, come on, you should have done it in the first one. I, I was talking about, like, civilian death, which I feel Wonder Woman wouldn't be all that into. I don't but... know. Even those people, they're all just... It's, it's all ruined. It's all ruined. And if this is the one good DC Cinematic Universe movie they make, they should fucking end while they're on top, is my opinion. She, she, the Justice League movie is her getting rid of the entire dark universe and then going through a portal to a nice, happy universe. Well, when you say dark universe, do you mean the universal horror monster movie dark universe or do you mean the Justice League dark, dark universe? Because that's the real question. 